Hello, everybody. It's Bob Diamond, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here. And we have a really great guest today. Um, Sean Gavami is a gentleman who is maybe in, in shoes that you're in. He's a guy that graduated from college, took corporate jobs, did well at his corporate jobs, but wanted to have his own, his own thing, his own business. And we all know lots of reasons for that. And Sean has made it. Now, not without some setbacks along the way, but he has made it. And today he's managing short-term rentals and having a fantastic business, making great money, you know, having the freedom and not having to report to a boss that maybe he doesn't love or, or work with colleagues that he's not, you know, not best friends with, to put it mildly. Um, and he's made it. And he did it you know, really by you know, holding on to the rope that, that can be corporate America where you have that security, but then starting as a side hustle and growing it into a full-time you know, job replacement business. So I think it's really ideal for, for this podcast because the topic, as you know, of our podcast is that we're looking at you know, what was the pathway of a person who left the nine to five type job into success in their own business? And how did that work? What were the challenges? You know, and what did they do and how did they make it? Because I think there's no easier way to success than modeling someone who is successful. And also just as an aside, and this isn't the purpose of this particular podcast, but Sean does teach the business, um, has, does education on it. Uh, but we're not here to talk a lot about that today. But just so you know, if it's something that you're interested in, where you say, I want to learn more from Sean, if you send us something in the show notes, we can send you, you know, some more information about that and some links. But Sean's really here today to tell us about his journey, his personal journey to success and how that worked. And I'm really excited to have him. So Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Bob. Appreciate you having me. And thank you for the great intro. Sure. You're, you're welcome. Uh, Well-deserved because if... For, for us that have made it out of the net, like the fish that made it out of the net, we're going to help the other fish escape if we can. Um, so let's go back to, to you started, I, when did you graduate from schools? 2010, correct? Yes, 2010, I graduated from the University of British Columbia with a finance degree. Okay, so you're very traditional, I would say. Yeah, very traditional. And were you born in Canada or, or did you immigrate? Uh, I was born in Iran, and I immigrated to Canada at the age of five as a refugee. So that's a that's a a big journey. Did yes. you only speak Farsi back in when you were five? Um, when I was five, I spoke Farsi, and I also spoke Turkish because we lived in Turkey for two years before we could immigrate to Canada. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but not English, I suppose. Not English. No. Wow. Not a word so of that's English. that in itself is a good. You know, good accomplishment to come, you know, yes. come to a new culture, I guess, a completely Absolutely. new culture. So, so tell me, when you first started out after college, where did you go? What was your first position? Yeah, so while I was in college, well, my, my whole goal when I got into college, I had a very simple mindset. I'm like, how can I make the most amount of money possible? That, that was it. I was like a money-obsessed kid, mainly because I came from a broke background. So while I was in college, yeah. I was actually working at a bank. I was working for Scotiabank as a teller. And then as soon as I graduated, I went straight to Wall Street. So I had a whole bunch of banking offers in Vancouver, British Columbia, but I went straight to Wall Street. I was working for Standard & Poor's. And if you guys don't know what that is, that's the biggest credit rating agency on the planet. And I was working in, a, in, a, in their group called Capital IQ. So for Capital IQ, I was making financial models for the investment bankers, the hedge fund managers, the private equity firms, you know, the people that we all love. <clears throat> And I did that for a year 
And I decided to come back to Vancouver, British Columbia after that, mainly because while I was in New York City, and I was actually living on Wall Street too, ironically, my residential address was 63 Wall Street, believe it or not. Wow. So pretty, pretty, uh, pretty interesting situation. But I decided to come back because while I was in New York, my parents were still living in poverty. So they were still on welfare. They were still in government housing. And my whole goal was to buy them a house. And I was thinking to myself, how am I going to buy them a house if I'm living in New York? So I, I came sure. back to Vancouver um, and then I got into banking in Vancouver. So should I just continue going like where? Yeah, yeah, because I think, you know, I think what people want to learn for everybody out there, yeah. the point of this to learn from Sean is like, where was his background? Because maybe you can see yourself in there where you're working in a very traditional accounting, banking, law like I did, like, you know, these traditional kinds of jobs that don't directly lead to entrepreneurship, at least you wouldn't think, but you managed to make the leap. So you were, you were big bond rating agency. And by yes. the way, that was the one that got a lot of blame for the 2008 yes. financial crisis because yep. they said they overrated the bonds, but whatever, yep. it's not a, that's a story for another day. Uh, yep. But you got there a little after that, which must have been an interesting time to say the yes. least. Um, yes. So where did you go from there? So you came back to Vancouver to help out your parents who were- I know, did, yeah. And, and I'll say this, like, you know, as a as a 22 year old kid, when I moved to New York City, you know, I thought the streets would be paved in gold, and you know there was there was going to be money everywhere. But I quickly found out while I was in New York City, I was dead broke. Because what see one thing that they don't teach you in school, especially in business school, is taxes. They don't, they don't teach you taxes. So when I got to New York, I realized I had to pay three different sets of taxes. So there was you know yeah. the federal tax, the state tax, and then there was a local tax if you worked in Manhattan. So net of yes. taxes, I was making nothing. And ironically, I was actually in debt. So I was like, okay, this is in interesting scenario. I have all this prestige, but I'm actually dead broke, net of taxes. So not only am I dead broke, but my family's dead broke. So what I did was I moved back to Vancouver, British Columbia. And the way I did it was I simply picked up the phone and I called my contacts at Scotiabank. Cause like I mentioned, while I was in university, I was working as a teller uh, for Scotiabank. And I also got an internship in their wealth management group. And we, we can get into, you know, how I did that if anybody's interested, but basically I moved back to Vancouver, started working for Scotiabank in their commercial banking group. So I was a senior associate for one year in commercial banking. Then I got a promotion to become a relationship manager. And that means that I had a portfolio of clients to manage. And what we did in commercial banking, as opposed to say investment banking is we lent money to corporations. So what that would mean is, you know, term loans, lines of credit, if one company wanted to buy another company and they needed debt financing to facilitate that, I'd be the guy to make that happen. Management buyouts, all that sort of fancy stuff. So I was at Scotiabank for three years, Royal Bank of Canada for five years as a senior manager in commercial banking, and then two years as a director at BMO Commercial Banking in downtown Vancouver before I quit to do Airbnb full time. So that's my career trajectory. The one piece of feedback I would give to anybody watching is that I always believed as a, you know, 18 year old going into university that if I got into finance, that I'd be rich. You know, that's just, that's just what I thought. The reality of what happens, especially in Canada or the U S is that the higher you go up in the corporate ladder, you end up paying more and more in taxes. And I quickly realized that in Canada, if you, I think it's 250 or $260,000 a year, 
<clears throat> once you pass that income bracket, you actually end up paying 54% in personal tax, 54%. And what I also realized is that all my clients in commercial banking, they did not pay 54% in taxes, right? So there's the small business no. category where you pay 10 to 11% in taxes. And at the highest level, you pay somewhere between 23 to 25% in corporate taxes. This is after you expense all the things that you're allowed to expense, like meals and entertainment, traveling, except food, et cetera, et cetera. So I quickly realized, and this is the last point that I'll, that I'll make, is that in a capitalist society, such as the U.S. and Canada, capitalist societies are not set up for employees. They're set up for employers. So I just decided I need to become an employer because solely for tax purposes, it doesn't make sense to be an employee. So you're so you're so right about that's an interesting observation I hadn't really thought about before. You're correct. They are because when you're an employer, you get to deduct so many things. And just yep. here's just like a simple one: healthcare insurance, hundred percent yep. deductible from the employer side, not yep. necessarily deductible at all from the employee side. And that's just the beginning. It's just the start. So you're right about that. And I think you know keeping more of what you make is a great, you know, a great part of what you can do um, as a, as a business owner, but not as an employee. I mean, you know, there there are ways in the United States tax system to have a total tax rate of four percent. So wow. that's you know, I that's would I would love I would love properly. to know about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a subject for another day. Yeah, and if I was exactly. living in the tropical island of Puerto Rico, um, yeah. so let's let's continue on. So. So you're doing well. I mean, this is my observation. Yeah. You're doing well. You made it to director level, which is a very high level in banking and, and yes. banking investment frame, but as no director level is a very high achievement. Yeah. You make director, that's a big deal. Um, and and yet you decided to go out on your own. What was it that motivated you to to want to sort of take the risk? Because it sounds like you're doing yeah. well. I bet you're making some good money when you got to director level. You're at this point 10 years into your career. Um, yeah. So what, what motivated me to start my own business? So it, it goes back to actually when I was at Scotiabank, because when I was at Scotiabank and I was a relationship manager there, I wasn't making a huge amount of money and I needed a way to make huge amounts of money for one reason. I needed to buy my parents a house. And if anybody doesn't know, Vancouver, British Columbia is very, very expensive when it comes to real estate. So net of taxes good luck trying to figure out how to buy a house in Vancouver. It's, it's one of the wow. most expensive places on planet earth. So my sole motivation since I was a kid was I got to get my parents off welfare and I got to get them into the, into a house that they owned themselves. That's why I decided to get into business for myself. And I was working some crazy hours initially, you know, cause I, I didn't know what I was doing. So I'll tell you exactly how it started. So I was, I was a relationship manager at Scotiabank, and this dates back to, I think it was 2017. I was a relationship manager, so I had my typical nine to five. I'd get to work around eight, 8.30 in the morning, and at 10 a.m., I would leave my banking job, and I was fully dressed up in a suit and tie and everything. I'd leave my job, I'd go to my first Airbnb, and I would start cleaning it myself. And, and there's there's two different bathrooms at this property. And I would be scrubbing the toilets myself, you know, vacuuming, laundering the sheets, doing the laundry. I did all that stuff. And I would check in the guests manually, like I would hand the guests the key at 3 p.m. Because if anybody knows anything about Airbnb, typically checkout is at 10 a.m., check-in is at 3 p.m. So for five hours, I'd be cleaning and getting the unit ready, hand off the keys in person. Then I'd go back to my banking job. I put my suit back on. 
go back to my banking job at three and I stay there, stay there until 10. And if anybody asked, I just say, yeah, I'm, I'm in a meeting. I'm going to, I'm going to client meeting. <laughs> so now I did this for six months. Now, keeping in mind, I still got my work done as well. I wasn't, uh, you know, deceiving my boss in any way. I was still getting my work done because I go back to work at three, stay till 10. So for six months, I did this <clears throat> until one day I showed up to the property and let's just say it was such a war zone in terms of the clean, the cleaning required. I just went to Craigslist. I found a cleaner and I never did cleaning again after that. Cleaner came in. She took care of it. I decided I can't be a cheap business owner. Like I need to actually incur some expenses in order to scale this business. So I brought in a cleaner. She took care of the cleaning. <clears throat> Thank God for her. Because the moment I stepped away from having to clean myself, I focused on expanding the business, not working inside the business, but working on the business. <clears throat> so my very first property that I got was actually a rental arbitrage deal. And if anyone doesn't know what that means, that means I went and rented the property myself and it was just right off Craigslist. So I paid the landlord rent, put the property on Airbnb, and I took the difference between Airbnb revenue and rent and the rental rate. So I took that arbitrage profit and that property, actually, this is an interesting story how it started too. I didn't realize how much money you could make on Airbnb at first. So when I initially rented the property from the landlord, I was living in one of the bedrooms. It was a three bedroom property. I lived in the smallest bedroom with my girlfriend and I put the other two bedrooms on Airbnb. So I put the master bedroom as one listing on Airbnb. And I put the second bedroom as a separate listing on Airbnb. Master bedroom was going for around 120, 130 a night. The second bedroom was going for around 65 bucks a night. And what's amazing is that while I was living in the third bedroom, the smallest bedroom, and I was sharing a bathroom with one of the guests, it covered my rent and it produced a profit. And that was very interesting because initially my whole motive was I'm like, how do I just live rent free in downtown Vancouver? Because downtown Vancouver is very expensive. So the moment I accomplished that goal, I was like, okay, I'm living rent free. What would happen if I rented the entire property on Airbnb? Now that's when it got very interesting. I stopped living at the property. I put the entire property on Airbnb. And then very quickly, I started making 400 a night, 500 a night, 600 a night, all the way to $1,000 a night when summertime hit. And when that happened, I was like, wait a second. This one property is making me more money than my prestigious banking job. And that's when the light bulb went off and I was okay, I could really turn this into a business. Now, after that, I decided, okay, there's two approaches I have. I could either continue renting properties and re-renting them on Airbnb, or I can manage properties for landlords. Because for those of you that are not aware, if you go to Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, Zillow, or any property rental website, you'll see in any market on the planet, there's properties that are sitting uh, vacant. They're just not getting rented up. So if you find a property that's been vacant for at least 20 days or longer, that means the landlord has a real pain point. Now, why does the landlord have a pain point? They have a pain point because they're paying for property taxes, mortgage, interest, insurance, uh, property maintenance expenses. So they're, they're literally losing money. They need a tenant to shore up all their expenses. So you step in and you say, Hey, not only am I going to cover all your expenses, I'm going to, I'm going to actually double or triple your rental rate. 
Now that's a very appealing value proposition because you're providing a painkiller solution, right? They have a pain and you're telling them that you're going to make them more money. So it's, it's a no brainer for them to work with you. And that's why we've been able to expand to 24 properties. Wow. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense too, because you don't have like in your first rental arbitrage and for everybody, just in case you didn't catch it, that's where you rent the property and you say, Hey, I'll pay you whatever, $2,000 a month. Yeah. And then you hope that you rent it and get enough revenue to cover not only those, those rents that yeah. you have to pay plus, plus profit. And there's always risk in that. Anytime you're guaranteeing anything, there's always risk to your new play, which is saying to the same landlord, Hey, I'll do the management. Yeah. I'll make this produce a lot more money. I'll take care of this, you know, short-term rental. And if it's not rented, you're not paying anything, which I love. Cause if you had, you know, with one, one property, it's one thing. If you had 24 properties where you're paying, and I'll just use the number cause it's easy. 2000 a month. That's a $48,000 a month obligation that you have to yeah. pay. And if you don't pay, yeah. you could be sued. And if you're a rental property manager, you know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't rent, you owe zero dollars per month. Of course, you're not going to make money, but there's a big difference between not making money that month versus losing $48,000. So I love that. I love that strategy. And I think everybody here should take note of that. When you're looking at business opportunities, be really careful about, you know, signing yourself on as a personal guarantor. And in many, as our ex-banker, Sean, will tell you, at least in America, I assume it's the same in Canada. If you're getting business loans for your small business, they're going to be wanting personal signatures, which means if it all goes wrong, they're coming after you, your bank accounts, your, you know, your house, your belongings to pay that debt. Yeah. And what Sean's talking about, what I love about the, you know, the risk reduction piece of this, if it doesn't rent out, it doesn't rent out. The worst they can do is fire you and say, I don't work with you anymore because you're not a good, you know, good manager. All right. You know, that's a whole world different than getting, you know, banks, lawyers chasing you around. And I think yeah. for any business you look at, that's a great thing to look at. Um, and also, I don't know if you want to talk about this at all, but in a business like Airbnb, they change the rules sometimes. And yeah. what you don't want is to be on the hook for, you know, 24 properties at 48 grand a month. And then they yes. change the rules, say, you know what, we changed your mind. There's no more short term rentals. Mm -hmm. And then you've got this big obligation that you have to pay until those leases expire. You know, you're way better off in a situation like that. We're like, all right, so this city or this section isn't allowing this anymore. Let me go look at the other, you know, 300,000 places I could do this around the world and just do it there. So I also like that, you know, it's, it's low risk it really Absolutely. is. And one thing I'll say, uh, because you brought up two good points, you know, one rent to arbitrage is risky and two regulations. And I want to talk about both really quick. Cause I think um, that is a hot topic. Yeah. Let me so, hear about it. When it comes to rental arbitrage, if anybody's interested in seeing, has a company been able to scale to the highest levels at rental arbitrage? The answer is no, they have not. So there's two examples huh. anybody can research on Google. You can go to Google, you can type in Stay Alfred. So this was a company that raised a couple million bucks. I'm not sure exactly how much, but they had hundreds of units that they master leased. So it was a very big rental arbitrage company, more or less. Now they went bust. The reason when they went bust is because number one, they were buying furniture for every single property. Number two, they were paying rent. That's a very expensive wow. capital intensive business. <clears throat> yeah. And when COVID hit, they immediately went bust. 
So that's one example they could look at. Now, a better example to look at is a company called Sonder. Now, they're actually a publicly traded company. So if you pull up Sonder on Yahoo Finance, you will see, and this is incredible, that they have never produced a profit. And even though they've never produced a profit, if memory serves me correctly, they have raised $180 million, which to me doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't know how they managed to raise this amount of money, but $180 million, they've never been profitable. And again, think about why. Well, it's a a capital intensive business. Is that their model? Do they, do they, do they master lease properties and and, master lease properties? Yeah. Yeah. They they master lease um, multifamily buildings as well as uh, boutique hotels. But it's a very expensive way to do business. Yeah. And now, it, now as opposed to that, here's a here's a better case study. Has has there been a company that's been able to effectively scale with Airbnb management? And there is one. There's there's a handful, but one very good case study is a company called Vacasa. Vacasa is also a publicly traded company. I don't remember if they're profitable recently. But, I, but they have been historically profitable. I'm not sure about their most recent year end or most recent quarter. They, they actually might not be profitable at the moment. But the point is that company has far fewer liabilities than a company like Sonder that's just doing master leasing. Now, yeah, the, problem is the second you thing I'd like to address is regulations. Cause this, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say the problem, if we just cover the first point where it's, you know, if you get yourself obligated to a monthly payment, stuff happens in the external world that you cannot anticipate and you cannot control. Yes. The most recent example is COVID, which I think in yes. financial world they call a black swan event. Yes. You just don't know when something like that's going to show up. And you know who would have thought before that, oh, well, they're going to prevent anybody from traveling or going out. Like You would have thought that was impossible. But the yeah. impossible does happen sometimes. And the problem is if you're in business for a long time and you're structured in a way that's that's not you know low risk you can be run right out of business even though you may have a good solid underlying business and i think in airbnb the example i don't think buying places and using them as airbnb is a great idea or short-term rental is probably a better term i don't mm-hmm. think obligating yourself to a master lease now the counter argument to that would be well you can make more money because you know you're not gonna you're not gonna be sharing the profit with the landlord I would rather have a 30% share of something with like 0% risk mm-hmm. than 100% share with 100% risk. Absolutely. Just me. Absolutely. That's the attorney in me. I, I can tell yeah. you. We're like and, attorneys, you know, see the, we see the afterflow of, of high risk business and things with high debt, high monthly service are not great. And also you have to explain it to your wife or husband. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> saying, exactly. Honey, I'm going to sign 48 leases. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And and, and you make a good point. You know, there there's there's potentially going to be a black swan event in any business. And what's good about managing properties is that because you're taking a percentage of revenue, it doesn't really matter what happens. Even if a black right. swan event hits, um, you're not responsible for the rent. So really nothing happens to you is, is my point. Um, I'm not aware of any big management companies that have gone bust the same way that rent no. arbitrage companies went bust when COVID hit. So this is this is a classic middleman play. Like to me, it's the equivalent of like say a, a stockbroker. Yeah, stockbrokers don't go broke when the market goes down. They weren't yeah. the ones jumping out of windows in 1929. Yes, because they make money whenever there's activity going down and going up. Doesn't really matter. Now, do they make you know? like a, a large hedge fund manager that, you know, makes a billion dollars on a trade. Mm-hmm. No, 
but they make money month in, month out, day in, day out, and they yes. can expand. I think this is a much better strategy. I would agree with you like wholeheartedly, Sean. This is a way smarter strategy because the other almost predictable black swan in this business mm-hmm. is that in some markets, they're going to outlaw you know, these things. And mm-hmm. what your harm is in the business that you're talking about is you do have to go replace those units somewhere else. Yep. Okay. That's, you know, that's like you've lost some of your business, so you have to go and, and lease up or you know, enter to agreements on new properties. That is a small potatoes problem compared to being obligated for thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands a month in debt payment. Yep. Or God forbid, can you imagine having like 83 truck roads, loads of furniture? Like those other models. Yeah. What do you do with that stuff? And a couple things I'll add to that. So, because I get asked this question all the time, they, you know, people ask me, what about the furniture costs? So here's the beautiful thing. If you go to Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, or Zillow, you can screen for properties that are already furnished. And this is in every city and every state all across America, all across Canada. Just screen for properties that are already furnished. And you would not believe how many of those properties are out there. These are turnkey properties. Nobody needs to put any furniture in them. You just need to approach the landlords. Now, the other thing I'll say is we all know that for the average person, their dream is to own property. And you made a good point, you know, getting into like if your first deal is buying a property for Airbnb, that's very risky when you don't know what you're doing. But But here's the beautiful thing when you know what you're doing. So let's say if you get into this business, you incorporate a company you start accumulating financial results, right? And you're a management company. So, which is exactly what I did. Now, what you do eventually after that, especially when you have a commercial banking relationship or a small business relationship is you go to the bank and you say, I would like to buy a property and I'd like you to finance it. Now, this is a business business loan, not a personal loan. So it does not appear on your personal credit bureau. And I'll tell you something that's really amazing. My very first deal that I did, so I I went to my commercial banker and I got 100% loan to value. Wow. Now, if anybody, now, if anybody knows what that means, that means I did not put a down payment for this property. The bank fully financed it. Now, why would the bank do that? The bank did it because my company had no debt and it had very, very strong cash flow. Now, obviously, you have to get exceptions through the risk management group. This is not a simple thing. I'm not saying you can run out there if you start a management business and get 100% loan to value. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Obviously, I have banking connections. I know how to you know, structure a uh, a loan right up to the bank, et cetera. But my point is the very first deal I did was hundred percent loan to value. The second deal I did was either 75% or 80% loan to value. I actually don't remember, but the first property I bought was a sub penthouse and I put it on Airbnb. And the second property was a one bed, one bath. And I put that one on Airbnb as well. So this is also something that people miss is that people want to get into a side hustle. I totally get that. But the benefit of Airbnb is that the side hustle can actually end up buying you a piece of property. And I'm just not aware of other business models that can help you do that. Like how many business models are out there where you can get into it with basically zero dollars and that side hustle can also allow you to buy real estate with potentially no down payment. That gets very interesting. Now, the other thing I'll address is regulations because Bob, you're absolutely right. Regulations are changing all the time. So here's my approach to regulations, because this is probably the number one topic that's discussed when people think about Airbnb. So for me, I actually love regulations. I don't like gray zones. Gray zones meaning 
it's a free for all. The regulations are not clear. It could change on a dime and you could potentially be screwed. I love going into places that are restricted and the more restricted, the better. And I'll tell you why. So my approach is very simple. If a market is heavily regulated, then that means that there's less supply to compete with, right? Excess demand, less supply equals premium profits. That's, that's my approach. San Francisco is a great example of that. Vancouver is also a great example of that. These are highly restricted markets. And what I typically find is that most people, as soon as they hear, hey, Vancouver or San Francisco is heavily regulated, they just run away from the business entirely. They are too lazy to just read the regulations, understand them, legally get licensed and legally scale up. New York City is a fantastic example of that. And for anybody watching, I want to go through a specific hack for New York City just to show you that you can legally scale up in the most restricted place on planet Earth. Like I'm not aware of any market that's more restricted, uh, restrictive than New York City when it comes to Airbnb. So for anybody that's not aware, New York City hates Airbnb, right? They, they absolutely hate it. So I'll give you a simple hack, right? And this is just, um, this is one of many. But you could go into New York City and for example, you can find a townhouse, okay? Two level townhouse. Now what the regulations state in New York City and in most restricted cities is that you can only Airbnb if it's your principal residence. That's the majority of the case. But New York City goes a step further. New York City says, you must be living at the property at the same time as the guest checking in. So that makes it very restrictive. Like how can you check in a guest yeah. if you're living there at the same time? That doesn't make any sense, but there's a way to do it. Well, there's two ways to do it. One is if you have a two bedroom, you can certainly put it up as a co-shared uh, opportunity. So you live in one of the bedrooms and you rent the spare bedroom on Airbnb. That's not an ideal way to do it. You can't scale that. Another way to do it is to go after a townhouse. So for a townhouse, you can declare the basement as a principal residence, and this would be the landlord's principal residence, or it could be the cleaner's principal residence, or the neighbor's principal residence. The landlord gets the licensing done for you. That's the point. They go to a family member, a friend, or themselves. They declare the basement as a principal residence. The upper floor becomes an Airbnb. And right there, you've bypassed regulations. And if you want to test this theory, just go to airbnb.com pull up manhattan new york and find the townhouses on there and what you'll find is the townhouses are legally licensed they go for one thousand to two thousand dollars a night wow. and they're on airbnb 365 days a year these people are literally printing money and they're doing it completely legally Oof. my my whole point is not to go to new york city and go after townhouses my whole point is if you understand the regulations there's always going to be a legal loophole. You're not doing anything illegal. You're just a very stu studious individual. You've taken the time to read the regulations and figured out a way to, to scale up legally. So that's, that's an example for New York City. But my overall point is that I love regulations and I hope they regulate it even more because it keeps restricting supply and it keeps making people like myself more and more money. So I hope they keep regulating this thing. So that's my approach. We better not send this to any government agencies. They'll be working yeah, around I mean, trying to figure it out. Yeah. They're, you're right. There's, you know, for as long as there have been rules, there have been people who figure out ways, you know, to profit from the rules. Yeah. And I would just say in the US, that's taxes. I mean, there's there are whole <laughs> industries where people figure out ways to pay minimal taxes. Like you say, how does Warren Buffett pay less taxes than a secretary? 
Well, it's because yeah. he actually worked at it and paid attention. And there are always loopholes. Yes. That, that's just the way it is. And that's really, and also for, for all you out there, this is why whatever business you ever choose to do, whether it's, hey, I want to you know, do what Sean does. I want to you know, learn more about that, the short-term rentals and do that. You want to learn from someone who's doing it successfully. That's all. That's like, and it doesn't matter what business you're doing. The do-it-yourselfer way it is very you know, fraught with problems. You're going to have headaches. You're going to do unnecessary damage, and you're going to have a lot of unnecessary effort and stress. That if you just follow someone who knows what the heck they're doing, they'll get you through the jungle without being eaten by a lion yeah, <laughs> or exactly. scratched up by a bear because they've, they've already been down those roads. And sometimes you know, when you're looking at any business, you see the outer layer of the onion, maybe if you're really good, you see two or three layers in, but talk to someone who's been there for a while or a man or a woman who's been doing it, they're seven layers in. And you just can't, you know, very few people would ever be brilliant enough to see a couple layers in. But the man or woman has been out there in the field, yes, they're the one. That's why no matter what you're doing, um, don't think of all life as a do-it-yourself project. It's not that. That's a very you know, inefficient, hard, risky way to do things. Think of it when you're looking for a business. Hey, I want to find something that fits my personality, that really jazzes me up, like if what Sean's talking about really gets you excited. And then your next question is, all right, how can I learn from this person who's doing it successfully? Like, how can I do that? Yeah. That's really your question because that's, that's just the smartest thing. And the other thing I'll share with everybody here, it is a smart person disease. The people yes. who are successful, doctors, lawyers, mm -hmm. overly educated people or highly educated people, like I could figure it out. And yes, give it enough time and, and brain damage, you can figure it out. But don't, it's not a good plan. You know, I would rather in the business I teach, I would rather have some guy or woman that just graduated from the military that's used to getting directions and following them. And I'd say, mm -hmm. here's what you do. And then like a good soldier, they go out and do it. And guess what? They're successful at it. And, and you know, when I get people like, and I'll just say, finish my one last part of my speech here. So the last thing I'll say, a lot of times I get very, very smart people, you know, doctors and lawyers and engineers and things like that. And before they've done even their first deal, they want to tell me how to do the overages business. And I'm like, yes. you know, sometimes you come up with a couple odd good ideas and it's really great, but you're going to miss more, far more often than you're going to hit. And I don't care if anybody learns from me or someone else, but go like learn from somebody, use their system and then build on top of their shoulders. And that is the way, that is the smart, savvy way to do it. So I, I'm done with my speech, Sean. <laughs> No, you, you, you reminded me of something. You reminded me of a, of a quote because you, you mentioned, you know, smart, hardworking people, they tend to overthink things. And, and I have a, there's a quote that I heard recently. It was by Alex Hormozzi and I'm, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but he said something along the lines of a smart, hardworking person comes up with a hardworking solution. And I have a story to tell about that. So oh, that's such a good, it, it, such it, a good it makes line. sense. So for me, you know, I, I considered myself a smart, hardworking person, but what did that get me when I was trying to do it myself, like Bob was alluding to? Well, I was in banking and I decided to do the cleaning myself. That's a micro example, right? So again, smart, hardworking person, you're coming up with a hardworking solution. Let's do all the cleaning myself. Let's do all the check-ins and checkouts myself. That's a hardworking solution. Like, yes, you're a hard worker, but you, at some point you got to figure out, okay, what's, what's the cheat code? You know, can I get a mentor that's already done this? And that's that's Bob's whole point. Can you find somebody and learn from them? Because they've already been through the trial and error. 
Whereas somebody like myself, when I was, you know, 22, 23, I just thought I could figure it out myself. Well, you can. And you can. You can figure it out yourself. You're just going to burn a lot of your time, but you certainly can. Yeah, it's just not, it's not a good way to do it. I mean, there's, it's funny. I think it's like a lot of things in life. When you get too far to the margins, it sometimes doesn't work. Like when someone's too smart and they've heard that message you're talking about, like you immigrant parents, I'm not surprised at all. They're like, you know, work hard, son, and you can succeed in this, in the new society we've come to. And it's true. You can succeed to a degree for sure. And, you know, got you a long way. I mean, having a successful corporate career when you're really family couldn't give you much guidance for how Canadian society and business worked, I'm sure. But and you worked it. And I think yeah, it's, and, that's a great, that's, that's a writer downer for everybody. Yeah. There, there's a, there's another story I can share too, because I think when I was in my twenties, my obsession was how do I minimize my expenses versus focusing on how do I maximize revenues and how do I scale up? So I'll, t- I'll tell you a, an interesting story about how, if you obsess about expenses, it's going to actually hurt you in the long run. So here's what happened. When I put that first Airbnb full time on Airbnb, so I, I moved out of it, I put it on Airbnb, I had nowhere to live. So what I did was, and I'm in my mid 20s, I have a successful six figure banking career, I move in with my parents, like that's, that's how cheap I was, because I'm like, you know, it's about expense minimization, not revenue maximization, expense minimization. So I move in with my parents. So I do this long enough where I eventually buy a house for my parents and the house is two levels. I put, I put the first level of the house on Airbnb and that starts paying off the mortgage. But here's the problem. The second floor of the house only has two bedrooms. My oh, young no. brother takes one bedroom. My parents take the other bedroom. I blow up an air mattress in the living room and I'm, and I'm literally sleeping on this air mattress. Now the property was an hour away from downtown Vancouver. So every morning I had an hour commute to downtown, an hour commute back to a city called Maple Ridge because my obsession was expense minimization. So I literally scaled the Airbnb business to 11 units and I was sleeping on a floor mattress and I had a six figure banking job. And I can tell you one thing, I was stressed out. I was overweight. I was not in a happy state of mind. Like, yes, I was making money. I was not in a happy state of mind. So And here's the interesting thing that happened. The moment that I switched from expense minimization to revenue maximization, here's what happened. Something very simple. I moved back to downtown Vancouver and I actually started paying rent. I stopped Airbnb that one property. It freed up so much of my time that I was able to scale from 11 units to 24 units. That's such a great point. I think... That's a, that's a great point for everybody to get, because I think, and this, uh, we could talk about this. I think there's a shift in mindset from employee to business owner. And I want to get your take on this, Sean. So my thought, if you're an employee, you make X number of dollars per year, let's say a hundred thousand dollars to make a hundred grand. If you want more in life and a better life, your income is fixed. So that means that you're going to do things yourself, like maybe put down new tile on the floor or paint the house or you know, do a renovation, you're going to do those things, which you spend time to do. There's no question where you, you know, you're going to, you're going to minimize your expenses, but Mm -hmm. you can never minimize your way to a fortune. You can just minimize your life to a little way to a little better life. When you shift to business owner, you need to shift your mindset to how can I increase the revenue side of the business while still holding a profit margin? But how can I do that? You focus on that 
Because like you pointed out, when you saved all that time, all of a sudden you have time to go acquire extra units. And maybe every unit, maybe it makes you $500 a month or a thousand a month, whatever it is, doesn't matter. But you know, when you have 10 of them, all of a sudden, hey, there's an extra five grand a month. It's probably more than that, but you know, to the point, make it simple math. So when you're thinking about shifting to being a business owner, you got to shift your thinking to how can I save my time rather than save your money? And how can I increase my top line revenue? I mean, my, my money coming in, assuming that what you do is profitable with each additional unit. And I think that's, that's a good lesson, an important lesson that I think you have to learn when you shift from employee to entrepreneur, because entrepreneurs are going to have a better life by scaling up and getting more. Like I'd rather have a hundred units at a 3% profit than, you know, five units at a 20% profit for me. Yes. Rather have that. Yes. So. And, it, and it goes back to the very simple principle that I'm sure we've all read in the book, E-Myth. If you haven't read it, I'd, I'd highly recommend anyone watching to read the book. But the very Me simple too. principle is you can only get so far if you're working in your business. So if you're the guy cleaning the toilets and changing the sheets, you can only go so far. At some point, you have to work on your business and not in your business. And the moment I read that book and figured out that concept, I started spending money to grow my business, to grow the top line instead of obsessing about expense minimization. Yeah. And that for anybody who doesn't know that, so the E-Myth, very famous book. It's great. It's by a guy named Michael Gerber. Mm-hmm. And I think for a new entrepreneur, that is a, that's a must read for a new entrepreneur for sure. Cause that'll give you that mindset. And that's a classic. That's gotta be 20 years old at least, yes. but it very is, good. it's a classic for a reason. Not yeah. Yeah, because it's good. Exactly. And, yeah, it's, you know, the more you know, and the more you learn, the better you'll do in business. That's Absolutely. for sure. And it's, you know, you, sometimes I think business owners get lost because there's a lot to do and to know, um, you know, accounting and taxes are much more complicated for business, but what you need to do rather than figuring it out is you have to hire an accountant and you have to say, how do I make the money in my main business to hire competent professionals to get it done? So I'm not up till midnight doing my taxes. And you, you just sparked an idea for me. And, and this is this is one common mistake I see with, with newbie business owners or newbie entrepreneurs. Before they even launch their business, they're obsessing about the wrong things. They're obsessing about incorporating a company, getting an accountant, doing a website, their logo, the colors on the website. Because I did that for my first business and that was a complete disaster. And we can, we can go into that at a later time. But when I finally figured out how business actually works, what I realized was it's just about speed and execution. So the first deal that I signed, I didn't even have a company incorporated. Like I, I literally had nothing. I didn't have a website. I didn't have a business card. I didn't even have a company. I had absolutely nothing. That's how I got my first deal. But, and I didn't have an accountant either. I literally just had nothing. But the newbie entrepreneur, their focus is almost on spending money. Let, let me go get an account. Let me incorporate a company. The philosophy I have is very simple. It's two words money in that's it like before you get money into your bank account don't worry about your account don't worry about your your lawyer just get money into your bank account money in though after you get money in then worry about the taxes then worry about incorporating then worry about the lawyers but if you don't have money coming in you you don't have a business you have you have an idea i, would, I, I agree with and I, I have something i think i could add to this and and that's it. I think you have to look at what is it that the business does that actually makes money? Like, what is the thing? And it's not your website. It's not your business card. It's not the world's best logo. 
-hmm. in your business, it's, I have a place for rent. I rent it out and they pay me to do that. Like that's the core. And you got to say, how am I going to most quickly get to doing that? And, you know, I think a lot of times when people are doing that stuff with, oh, I've got to meet with a lawyer, or I've got to do this, mm. they're afraid and they're procrastinating. Yes. That's in my opinion. Yes. Um, in my business, which is the overages business where, you know, you have to call people to tell them, hey, there's a refund you could get. Would you like to work with me? A lot of people are afraid to make those calls because yes. let's face it, the challenge can be getting people to believe you. And so they do all this other stuff. I mean, they're like obsessing over their website domain name for four days. And then they're, oh, I got to set up an, an LLC or a corporation. And then it's like, it just goes on. And they run out of energy. Yes. And I think half, halfway they're relieved because now they don't have to do anything and they can just continue yeah. their life. And again, for sort of universal lessons, I think what Sean's saying is absolutely universal lesson. And what my ad is essentially, whatever business you're looking at, look at the thing that it does that makes money. And for all businesses, it's something like you have a hot dog stand. It's we make hot dogs and here's your hot dog. Give me a dollar. But it's all that. And you got to say, what's the minimum I have to do in order to do that? Whatever it is. And for you, it'd yes. be, I've got to get a property, maybe my own yeah. property, maybe just a bedroom on my place or whatever. I've got a yeah. place that I could rent. I got to put it up on the platforms and I got to invite people in. Exactly. Most people, they just overthink things. And I think there's a, there's another interesting lesson that we could draw upon. And um, I don't want to go too esoteric with this lesson, but I think that people in North America, especially the ones that are born in North America, they can learn a lot from immigrants that come to North America. And here's the reason why. If you look at the businesses that are popping up near you, like anywhere in the US or anywhere in Canada, on average, it's going to be by an immigrant that's popping up with a new business. And the reason for that is the immigrant just doesn't know any better. Like they don't know anything about accounting or law or anything. So their entire mindset is speed, execution, money in. Like that's their entire mindset. And that's why you'll typically see immigrants starting up businesses at a much faster pace than people that were born in North America. And I think that one of the reasons for that is people in North America that are born here, they have a safety net. And having a safety net is a very dangerous thing when you want to start a business, because when you want to start a business, you cannot have a safety net. Like you have to be all in on your business. It's the mindset of I'm going to do it or I'm going to die trying. Like that's, that's gotta be the mindset. And certainly that was my mindset. And the other thing is that immigrants, especially people like myself who had many, many hardships, even immigrating to North America in the first place, they know how tough it is out there. Like in the third world, they know how tough it is. So when they come to a first world country like Canada or the US, they don't take their opportunities for granted. And they're just constantly fixated on success, execution, speed, money in. And I think somewhere along the line, certainly on the new generation that I'm seeing, you know, the, the Gen Z generation, the Gen Alpha generation, that's just been lost. I don't know. That's just kind of been lost. I feel like for my generation, the millennials, that hard work, the desire to start a business, it was always there. But I'm seeing that somewhere lost in translation for Gen Z, Gen Alpha. I don't know. That's just you know, been I my think it's, I, I think in some ways, it's it's two things. One, it, it's it's just having too much safety and comfort and feeling like, oh, it's never going to get that bad. You know, the government will give me a check. I'll always survive or you know, I can always I'll do okay. They're not scared and they're not hungry. Mm -hmm. And you have that luxury of, of not being hungry. 
But I think if you're, you know, like when your parents came over and I, Farsi, I would assume is their first language. Yes. Did they even speak yeah. English at all? Uh, my dad spoke, my dad studied in university in Iran. So he okay, spoke so a he little did. bit of English. Yeah. So you think about it, you're coming to a foreign culture. You probably don't really know anybody. You don't have any of that support system. Yeah. Those people are so terrified that they're going to go like find the shortest path to making money so they can get food. Yeah. Yes. And I, I think, you know, the generations today, I think they're too comfortable, number one. And they're also, and I don't want to go deep down this one, but they're being disincentivized by a press, I mean, the newspapers and all the news outlets yep. and people to tell them that they can't do it because the yep. system's rigged, because of big corporations, because of this. And no matter what the because of is, it's always some third thing that you don't control. And yep. the most dangerous thing is to fixate on, you know, something is stopping you. You don't control it and you can do nothing about it. Mm -hmm. You're you only have two choices. You either get depressed and fall into a slump and don't do anything, like a pile, yeah. like a jellyfish out of the sea, or you fight. Yes. And that's kind of what we see today. We see people doing awful things, fighting, or we yeah. see them just so depressed they're not even going to try. And yeah. the fact is that stuff's all a lie. The opportunity is still available. It does change, like the cheese changes with, with each generation where the opportunities are, but there's always opportunity. Um, yeah, there, there's another interesting theme that I'm seeing in the media. And it, it seems like people just wanna bash the traditional education system, which for me as a, as a traditionalist is very bizarre. So you have huge influencers out there. I'll mention one, Gary Vee, for example. He, he's constantly bashing the traditional education system. He's basically saying, don't go to college. That's his core message. And the reason he's saying that is because don't go to college, don't get into all this debt, just come out of high school and start working. For me personally, as a traditionalist, I don't like that message. Um, even though what I said earlier was money in, speed execution, we all get that. I still think there's tremendous value in the traditional education system. Like I would never tell anybody don't go to college. I think that's a terrible message to send out there. Because if you look at myself, all of the success that I've had, literally all of it, it all came from college. I'll give you two examples why. I would never have gotten the jobs I got without college. Like that would have never happened. I would have never accumulated those skill sets. The second reason that college was very valuable for me is because the my friends, the friends that I made in college, like think about it. College is a big filter, right? So the best people coming out of high school, they make it into college, especially if you're in a top 50, top 100 college, it's a filter. So you go to college, you meet other smart people, other like-minded people, you form a bond, and then ideally you start a business together. At least that's literally what happened for me. So my main business partner, we met in first year university. If I never did the traditional thing of going to college, I wouldn't even have a business. I, I, I just wouldn't. Yeah. And so for me, I, I think, think you're, I think you're onto something. And I, I think like, I understand it because there's so much talk today about how colleges are you know, indoctrinating kids and worried about pronouns and, and all this yeah, kind of stuff. For sure, for sure. I, I think that's probably more on the humanities side than on the business and like engineering side. Mm -hmm. I think that's more of a humanities problem. And I do, as some of you out there know, I, I do coaching for Harvard's business school and their startup program. And one of the things I observed, these people are sharp. There's no question about it, but when you meet them, I meet with them every week. They're, it's not like, oh, you must go to Harvard. You're a genius. It's not like that mm -hmm. at all. But what it is like, I can tell you, is that they get 
these connected with these great, hardworking, highly accomplished people, their classmates, because they don't get in there if they're not. And they also get the world's best advisors and advice. And they get all kinds of entrees into all kinds of things that you'd never get otherwise. Meaning what we do is we have 90 startup teams each semester. And there's a class each week that I attend with everybody else. And then afterwards, there are office hours where myself and the other mentors um, offer you know, our help yeah. to anybody who wants to talk to us. So basically office hours, I have three slots a week mm-hmm. that, that people can talk to me for 20 minutes each. Yeah. And we all put up like, you know, what we're expert in, and then they can choose. And I'll tell you, these, the people that are coaching for Harvard Business School are not like some schlump that had an idea that he might do sometime. These are highly accomplished people in their specialty. And, you know, when you're sitting there as a startup in your business, and that's what you have access to that network, it's, it's much easier to be successful. It doesn't take anything away from them. They work hard. They're doing it every day. You know, but I I don't think that I think Gary V is off on that advice. I think that yeah. there's still a lot of value. I don't know if you're going to go and study gender studies. That would be a great idea. But yeah, I don't like, sure. I don't get shut down in every social media because that's probably what'll happen if I start talking about that too much. But, yeah, and the thing is too know. with college. I mean, the, the, I get the message out there. It's like, hey, a lot of this stuff is pointless. Why am I trying to learn calculus? Why am I memorizing all these things? My own feedback to that is, number one getting into college teaches you the hard work. Like it, it, it's hard getting into college. So right there, that, that is a good skill set, how to work hard. So getting into college alone, that's a good thing. The second thing I find is that when you have to work hard, yes, you got to memorize a bunch of stuff that you might find pointless, but I actually believe that something is happening in the wiring of your brain. When you have to memorize all the stuff, when you have to learn a bunch of new things, something's happening in your brain. Your brain is trying to figure out how to methodically go about studying subject matter. And what you'll find is that that skill set does translate into business, even though you can't see that at that specific moment. But for me, I know that the way my mind thinks, a lot of it had to do with school. Just the way I approached my classes, something must have happened inside my brain because now I could think about things in a very methodical way. But if I never went to school, I would have never developed that skill set. So that's, I think one that's piece a good point. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. I think and, maybe you're learning how to organize information because, you know, as an yes. entrepreneur, one of the things we're doing is constantly learning, constantly looking at new information and you got to organize it in a way that you can use it yes. or discard it if, if it's not useful to you. So yeah. That's a really and great point. One practical piece of advice that I would give to new entrepreneurs, and I'm actually giving this advice to my younger brother. So <clears throat> my younger brother, he's 21. He's in business school. He's at Dalhousie University. And this is the exact advice that I've given him because he asked me, hey, should I go get a job or what should I do in university? I said, yeah, you could go get a job if you want. But my recommendation to him, and this is what I've started with him, is to make content. So what I've literally said to him word for word is your priority is to become an attention economist. Okay, I'm like, if you're in business school, the most important skill set that you can develop is how to get attention. Because that's one thing that I agree with when it comes to Gary Vee. <clears throat> attention is the new currency. And if you don't have that skill set, I, I do believe there, there's a limit to how far you can go in today's society, right? In the social media economy, <clears throat> you have to be on the internet. Because I, I, I just don't see how you can get big in business if you don't know how to get attention for yourself and for your company. 
So with my brother, what we've done is twice a week, he'll post a video on Instagram. So that trains him on how to make a 60 second video, hook, body, outro, et cetera. And then once a week, every Sunday, he'll make a YouTube video. So five to 10 minute video. So I'm trying to train him on basic marketing skills, copywriting, video production, how to post, but ultimately how to become an attention economist. Because that's what I told him. I'm like, I'm like, you want to be a businessman? He's like, yeah, I want to be a businessman. Okay, start with becoming an attention economist. That's the first skill set I'd like you to develop before you figure out what business you want to set up. So that that would be my advice for anybody that's, you know, Gen Z, that's in college, et cetera, become a, an attention economist. And I, I would say, I would have an ad for that. I think you're exactly right. And there's a book called The Attention Economy, by the way. I forget who mm. wrote it. It's not Gary Vee. It's another guy. But essentially that to me, if you wanted to put a, a, an overview on it, it's the sales and marketing side. And yeah. we have this gift today of easily accessible, easily producible, high quality video with very inexpensive equipment. Like, like we're, ba we're doing this basically by teleconference once upon yeah. a time, not too long ago, it costs like $3,000 an hour to sit in a conference room and have a teleconference across the world. Yeah. Now it costs exactly nothing to do that. You can get a free zoom account and do it and yes. it costs nothing. And I have on my, on my computer, a Logitech camera, which makes a, I think a very nice picture. Um, I think it was 200 bucks. I've got this Shure microphone, which makes really nice sound. This is probably not even 200 bucks. Yeah. And my computer and the internet service in my house. And exactly. yet you can have this high quality, you know, conversation and, and all that. And this is the way you can speak with potential customers. And I think that, you know, let's say that you're older, you could be older or younger, but if you're looking at business, I think the things that Sean's talking about, like learning copywriting what is that it just means writing ads essentially that are effective and that communicate mm -hmm. in an effective way with people um how to how to do a, a video and post it to instagram or social media and there's this amazing things that are done first of all there's a university of youtube which you can learn like almost anything for free and they're also very inexpensive conferences you know digital marketing conferences like i like the digital marketer guys um that are if you just look up digital marketer you'll see them you can go to conferences for not much money, $1,500, maybe $3,000 for a four or five day conference. And you can get the latest cutting edge stuff that's working. You do not need to, and you should not enroll into a university that's going to charge you, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for what I would call outdated marketing information that you're not learning from a practitioner. And, you know, that's, you don't learn from some guy from the streets who's, you know, 29 years old that's hitting it big because he knows how to do copy, he knows how to post things. And he can tell you, look, here's what you do. You do this many posts per week, this long, just like you're talking about, Sean. Mm -hmm. You want to do a five minute longer form video, a 60 second video has an open, a hook, you know, all that. And all that is learnable very inexpensively. And a lot of them now are online where you can attend them from home. You don't even have to travel. Yeah. It's like the day we live in is amazing, ripe with opportunity. Um, yes. It's just, incredible and that's a there, those are good points another, john there's another trend that i'm seeing too because again i want to go back to the point about how people don't value traditional education so here here's an observation that i made you go back a very long time ago the most influential people were philosophers you know we're talking about aristotle socrates etc 
Now, somewhere along the line, these philosophers lost influence and the study of philosophy just went to waste. Like everybody forgot about it. But the trend that I'm seeing now is philosophy is making a comeback because a lot of people feel lost. So they're going towards subject matter such as religion or philosophy to give them a purpose in life. So the advice that I would give right now is if there's two recommendations I have is that everybody should study philosophy in their spare time. And everybody should also focus on becoming an attention economist. Like these two things are very important. Because I think with philosophy, it actually helps you think. And as bizarre as that sounds, I feel like a lot of people, they just don't know how to think for themselves. Because you made a point earlier, Bob, about the media. You know, people are just, they're too easily influenced by whatever they see on the media. Even let's, let's take this instance that's happening right now. You know, you and I are on camera. This will go on YouTube. This will go on Instagram. And people will automatically believe whatever we're saying just because Probably we have should. a camera in front of us. And people have, to, <laughs> like, people have to be a little bit more skeptical. Like this person that's telling me all these things, do you have the skill set to fact check this person and do your own due diligence and think for yourself? Because as simple as that sounds, I feel like most people, they actually lack that basic skill set to just think for themselves, be a little bit of a skeptic and question things. But I think philosophy can teach them how to do that. I, I think so. And also, if, if you want another specific thing, so I was a philosophy minor in college, a finance major, philosophy minor. And the most useful class I ever had was logic. Mm. And logic is about peeling apart arguments and saying, you know, structural problems in them. And I'll just give you a really simple example. If you live in an area with cows and your cows are brown with you know, white with brown spots or some white with black spots, you could easily say, oh, all cows have spots. I got news for you. All cows don't have spots because as right. we've all seen pictures of cows that are all white or all black, right? Mm -hmm. But you could make the logical error and fallacy of saying all cows are because I've seen the cows. And the only way you could logically say that is if you knew you had seen every cow in the world and they all had spots. So yeah. it's, it's a silly example, but it really – the lesson in it in philosophy and logic is that you can't generalize from the specific unless you've seen all the specific examples. So when people like say, oh, this is always this way because I've seen something, you know that if you're trained in logic, they're wrong. That that's not, it's not a proof, it's not proof anyway. And yeah. if you're trained in that, and that's by the way, that's a course you can get online. You can get that at the mm -hmm. Khan Academy, you get a bunch of places. Yes. So yes. worthwhile. And I also agree with you about philosophy. And I'll I'll give you, I want to see if, if you subscribe to some of the same guys I subscribe to. Most entrepreneurs out there, their favorite philosophers are the Stoics. Yes. What do you think? I agree with you 100%. Stoics. And, and most people, especially most men, they don't know how to be stoic anymore. Oh, God. It's a lost art. Yeah, the Stoics, the Stoics are, for an entrepreneur, that is, that is another necessary. That's as, that's as much as the e-myth. That's something yes. you should definitely look at. And by the way, you can just look up online, Stoic philosophers, pick any of them, doesn't matter. And you can do short readings, two or three pages. I wouldn't do more than that because it's too much to think about. But yeah. I have one next to my – that is one of the books that's on my bedside table that I open up and I read Stoics one to three pages. gives you so much to think about and such great perspective because one of the things in entrepreneurship that happens is severe challenges that scare you. 
And mm-hmm. with that, John, I'd like to talk to you. So you had a, like a fall on your face failure with the yes. a business thing. Let's talk yes. about it. Cause I think if you're going to go into business, like it's better to talk about the things that you fear, like what happens when it's a fall on your face failure, what do you do? How do you come back from it? And how do you think about it? So, Absolutely. so tell us about your like flop. <clears throat> Absolutely. So I was 23 at the time and I was working at Scotiabank <clears throat> and I would see these financial statements from all my clients, you know, and they're all millionaires. So I just assumed one thing. I'm like, Hey, if I start any business, doesn't matter what the business is, it's going to be successful. You know, pie in the sky mindset. Wow. I just need a business. Okay. doesn't matter what it is. And I had all these bizarre ideas at the time. So I was like, I'll start a shoe shining business. Like I was seriously thinking about starting a shoe shine stand. <laughs> it was, it was crazy. So I was like, okay, I'll start a shoe shine stand. I'll start a janitorial company. And eventually the idea that I landed on was a dry cleaning pickup and drop off service. And I'll tell you exactly how it happened. One day I was reading TechCrunch and there was a company called Wash.io, Washio. And this company had just raised 5 million bucks. And one of the investors was Ashton Kutcher. So I was reading TechCrunch, I was 23. And I was like, oh, Ashton Kutcher invested in this company. I have to create this company in Vancouver. Like that, that was all the due diligence that I did. Wow. Here's what happened. I spent six months on this business. So I got an accountant. I got a lawyer. I incorporated a company. I even bought a van. I bought a van because, you know, you have to be able to pick up and drop off, you know, people's clothes. I bought a van. Now, here's the interesting thing about the, about the van. It was a GMC Astro. I ripped out the leather seats and I threw it away. So I just devalued the vehicle and I installed a rack. Right. So I installed a rack in the ceiling of the vehicle. So now I'm actually damaging and modifying the vehicle. So I'm, I keep devaluing it. And so I have a van. I have a website. <clears throat> the next thing I need, again, these are all expenses. I bought dry cleaning bags and I put my brand on it. And you guys can still see my brand. If you go to Google and you type in fab, F-A-B wash, fab wash. You can still see the image on Google images. So you know that I'm not making this stuff up. So I pay, I think I paid a thousand dollars to get the logo done on 99designs.com. So I'm in the hole, or I think around 20 grand at this point between the van and the the logo, the incorporation, the account, the lawyers. So finally what I do is I print out brochures, right? So I print out brochures and I think I'm so smart. I think I'm just a, you you know, like a marketing wizard. I print out a I print out a brochure, I staple it to the dry cleaning bag, and I put a hanger in it as well. So there's the hanger cost, the dry clean bag cost, and printing a brochure. So I had 150 of these. I went into an expensive neighborhood in Vancouver. It was an area called Caresdale. So all, all the rich people live there. And I had a very simple marketing strategy. I would go door to door and I would hang the hanger and the garment bag right on their door, right on their door handle. Cause in my mind, it's like, okay, when, when they come home, they're going to see this, <clears throat> they're going to, they're going to see this garment bag. <clears throat> they're going to see the brochure. And I had, and I was giving a discount and I was doing all these things. I was like, I'm going to be rich. Every single person is going to call me because I'm going right to their house. I'm picking up their, you know, high end clothing and I'm going to go cl- get it cleaned bring it back to them and I'm going to make a spread, right? So I pay the dry cleaning plant a certain amount of money. I charge the customer a premium and I take the spread. That was the idea. 150 doors, door to door. 
One person told me to get off their property. One person's like, hey, what are you doing here? Get off my property. I don't want that. So then, so then the next day I wait and, I, and I'm waiting for my phone to ring. I don't get any calls, no calls, no emails. A week went by, I kid you not. My, I was, I can't even explain how shocked I was. I didn't get a single call or email, not, not even one. And so finally after, you know, day number eight, day number nine, I finally get a call. And it was from somebody who had found me on Yelp. It wasn't even from the door to door activity. And I'll never forget this. The person said, Hey, I found you on Yelp. And I said, yeah, how can I help you? He's like, yeah, I have some towels that I'd like you to come wash for me. Can you do oh that? God. Some towels. And it was that day that I decided to oh shut down the business. Cause I'm like, wait a sec, six months of work, 150 doors that I've hit door to door, no calls. And finally somebody asked me to clean their towels. I was like, and, and I, at, at that point I was like, what am I doing with my life? I have a finance degree. I've worked on wall street. I'm in banking and I'm washing towels. So I decided to shut down the business and, and I, and take my losses. Now that the most ironic part about this story is that when I went to go sell the van, I actually made a profit on the van. So that was a Good. very <laughs> unique situation, but, but I made a profit on the van, but I lost money on everything else, including six, six months of my time. So there, there you go. That's my uh, business failure, but I'll, but I'll say this, <clears throat> I learned a lot from that experience. So the main thing that I learned about that experience is that you could be the best business person in the world, but if you're in the wrong industry, you will not make money. Okay. If you're in the wrong industry, you will not make money. And here's what happened when I was initially researching. So I went to IBIS world. So if anybody doesn't know what IBIS is, so IBIS is a you know market research platform. It gives you data about different industries, different business models. So I bought an IBIS World report about the dry cleaning industry. And guess what it said? It said the business and the industry is contracting. So oh, the boy. facts are stating that the industry is contracting. Now, in my mind, I said, it doesn't matter. I'm too smart. I know everything. Ashton Kutcher invested in Washio. They don't know what they're talking about. I avoided all the stats and all the research. And when you're in a contracting industry, it's very hard to make money. It, it sounds yes. very obvious, but if you're in the wrong business, the wrong industry, your likelihood to fail is very high. The most, the other interesting then thing that happened is that Washio also went bankrupt. Washio also went bankrupt. So I think it was literally four or five months after I shut down my business, Fabwash, Washio went bankrupt. So there you go. If you're in the wrong business, uh, you'll probably fail. Make sure you're very careful about what business you go into. I think that's good advice. And I think you should, um, you're right about if you're in a bad, you know, a downward trending business or market, yeah. it's just really hard to make money. Um, I remember yes. when I started out my life, I was, I was in real estate, like buying houses, fixing them up and renting them and buying houses, fixing and flipping. And the biggest challenge I had, I was in, a mostly declining market, which was Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. um, a few bright spots here and there. And it's just, you could make some money, but it was hard. And I had friends who invested in growth cities, like in the Southeast and in Texas. And, you know, today they have net worths in hundreds of millions of dollars from buying apartments and things like that. And it was just easier. And yes. one of the lessons I took out of that is, all right, so you go to places where it's growing. Like at one point I invested in Las Vegas and made a ton of money because it was in a growth mode. Um, mm -hmm. And that is something to definitely a core thing to look at in any business you're doing. Is it 
contracting, stable, or growing. Growing is ideal. Stable can be okay. Contracting is, is a no-go. I think investors call that catching falling knives. Yes. Um, it's an extremely bad idea. And that's, you know, you can't get so married to your own ideas and thinking that you're so smart. Because when you do, you'll get the lesson that you aren't. Yes. And that you don't know. And that's, you know, that's just something to look at. And I also would take out of that. That's why you want to talk to smart people, talk to people that you respect, talk to people that are successful in business and learn from them. Um, yes. And a lot of people are, are more accessible than you think. Like, yeah. like I know when people ask me for informal mentoring and help, you know, I help some of them and the things that they have to do to get help from me after the first time I sit down with them is I need to hear a follow-up. Like someone better send me an email or a text saying, Hey, thanks so much for meeting with me. I really appreciate it. I'm going to go do X. Yeah. And then I need to hear back from them and not too long of a time saying, Hey, I tried X. Here's what happened. Thanks so much for your advice. If you have anything else to share, I'd love it. Like I want to hear that they're thankful, number one, for my time. And number two, I want to hear that they did something with the, the advice I gave them because if they didn't, I'm not spending more time with them. Like, yeah. And I think that's, I don't know about you, Sean, but I think those are universal businessmen things. Yeah. There's, there's one more I'll add to it. And this one, this one's going to be very fascinating. So one, one of the most dangerous things that can happen in business is that you actually end up making money in a business but the business has extremely tight margins and now you're handcuffed to your business because the business is making money, but it's, the margins are very tight. And so here's, here's where I'm going with this. Take, take my case. If I had actually started to produce revenue in that dry cleaning and laundry business, who knows, maybe I'd still be in it because I'd be like, oh, well, it's producing revenue. Let me just keep it growing. And it's very dangerous to get into this type of situation. You'll typically see this with small restaurants, small mom and pop restaurants. They'll make just enough money to avoid having to shut down, but they're not actually making any money. They're not, they're not moving their life forward. They're just making enough money to pay their rent, pay their employees, and maybe have a very small take home pay. That's a very, very dangerous position to be in because now you're handcuffed to your business and you'll find there's no way out other than just shutting it down. So that's another situation to avoid for new entrepreneurs. Don't get into a business where you're just making enough money to keep the door open, but ultimately you're never going to be wealthy doing that. So <clears throat> it goes back advice. to what Bob was alluding to earlier, get into a growth industry. It's very important. Yeah, that's really good <laughs> advice. And also I think what's underlying this is think before you leave, no matter what you're going to choose to do, don't do it impulsively. You know, yep. it's, it's, there are many, many ways to make money. There are many opportunities out there more than you could take advantage of in 10 lifetimes. And you want to take your time to choose. And you can take a lesson from that from, you know, like Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors of, of our age. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, Warren is patient. Like he will, he waits to invest when the time is right. And he doesn't just, just go off and, and do the first thing. And, yeah. and that's good advice for life. You really want to be patient and choose where you're going to put your effort. Cause once you commit to something, it's a relationship, you know, it's like marrying somebody it's, you know, it's yes. easy to get in hard to get out expensive, time consuming and headache inducing to get out. And so you really want to be thoughtful about that before you do. And I think, you know, to me, the things I look at, first of all, I want to be from the initial moment excited about something like if, Yes. If I don't know if you've ever had this, Sean, 
someone will come up with an idea and I'll get a gut reaction. Yeah. And if it's negative, but then I do it anyway, I, I'm unhappy because something, yeah. it's almost like my body knows something's wrong, but, yeah. but I don't yet consciously. Um, so I learned to trust that gut instinct. If my gut is, you know, my stomach is the thing that feels it. Like if I feel instant, not in my stomach, I just, I've learned to just say, no, I don't want to be talked into it. I don't want to have a meeting about it. I don't want to have a zoom call. I don't want anything. I'm just a simple no. That's all. And no yes. is one of the best words in business. That's one of my things. And yeah. you know, if it doesn't jazz you, it's not just about money. Mm-hmm. I know you think that sometimes you're like, oh, anything I could do to make money, I would do. Cause I shared that thought too. Cause I was very yeah. motivated to make money. Yeah. It's not enough because you're, you know, whatever you do has yeah. what in business school, they call an opportunity cost, which is if you do this, you don't have time to do that. You clean toilets right. and clean departments. You don't have time to go get new ones. That's opportunity cost. I have a very interesting mindset about this. So you're absolutely right. Money, money is not enough. <clears throat> and here's, here's the best, best example I could give for that. So <clears throat> When I was on my way out of banking, I, I literally said to myself, I said, I had a very simple mindset. I said, if they doubled my pay, would I stay? If they doubled my pay? And the answer is no. I was like, I'm so miserable in what I do, like literally miserable. And on top of that, wow. I was out of shape. I was out of shape. I was stressed. Um, like sometimes I wake up in the morning with, with like I know they say night sweats, <clears throat> but for some reason I had day sweats when I'd wake up in the morning, just the amount of stress from the job and, and everything else. I was like, this is not healthy, regardless of how much money I, ma- I make. I'm, I'm shortening my lifespan. Like I, I got to get out of this situation because I, I just genuinely did not like what I, what I did, but I did it for the money. Right. Cause I was, I was a very money obsessed person, you know, trying to help my family, et cetera. But Money was not enough motivation after a certain, after a certain amount of money, money was no longer motivation. Like your health and your well-being start to take priority over time once you've actually made money. So that was a very interesting observation. Um, the second observation that I'll give is that when you're going into a new business, and this will sound very simple, but most people avoid thinking this way. When you're going into a new business, first look and see, do you know anyone that's rich? in that industry. Like literally, I know it sounds simple, but I'll give you my own example. When I was going into the dry cleaning and laundry business, I said to myself, is anybody rich in this business? And I started looking around. I went and met with every single dry cleaner, every single dry cleaner in downtown Vancouver or near downtown Vancouver. None of them were rich. None of them. They were all struggling. And yet to myself, because again, I had just come out of university, just come out of Wall Street. I said, I'm smarter than them and I will become rich. So I was avoiding all the facts. I was, again, pie in the sky. I'm smarter. I have a finance degree. They're not smart enough. That's why they're broke. That's not the way it goes. If you cannot find a single rich person in the business you want to go into, in all likelihood, you should probably avoid that business. So I think that, that's, that's a really not- good thought. And I think you know it can be easy sometimes to make a mistake. Like you might see something like, well, Amazon's basically a store online. Yeah. There are outliers in everything. And I yes. think you don't want to have to, you know, create a unicorn in, in order to succeed in the business. Correct. You're much better off going something where it's to me, I, I think of it in my mind. I'm either swimming downstream or I'm swimming yeah. upstream. I want to swim downstream where it's like, 
growth is easy. If you work moderately hard, you can succeed. When you're tackling something like you were, Sean, it's just hard. And yeah, you can get lucky. You'll point to that person that did, but that's not, that's not a good bet. That's a bad bet. That's like, oh, but he placed on 36 black and he won. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes Absolutely. people do, but Absolutely. the other hundred people didn't. And again, I, th I think that the, the most basic skill set that everyone should be able to do right now goes back to what I was saying before is learn how to make content. Because I'll tell you one thing, in my own personal network, I don't know a single person, not a single person that makes content, has an audience and is broke. Like I personally don't know anybody. Because no. if, if you have the ability to get attention, you will make money. And a really good example of that too is you look, because I have, I have a large following from the country of India. And if you look at the stats, the country of India, they have, if I remember correctly, 318 million or 360 million people that are on Instagram. So it's the most active uh, populace on Instagram are people from the country of India. And I get comments every single day, hey, I'm in India, I'm broke, I need to make money. It's like, okay, I can show you how to do that through Airbnb, et cetera, but Airbnb aside, just learn how to make content. Like there's over 300 million people in your country on Instagram alone. If you know how to get attention, you will monetize that attention. I mean, it's, it's just as simple as that. So for me, whether you're in North America, India, Nigeria, it doesn't matter. If you know how to get attention, you will make money. It's as simple as that. No, it's so a good especially point. to I mean, people it's... in third world countries, like learn how to get attention and you will not have any money problems, I guarantee you. There's a, you know, the modern day celebrities are internet celebrities. Yes. One of my neighbors lives behind me is a guy named Jake Paul. Oh, oh, was, oh okay, interesting. It, so you, you're in, um, what's that area called? Uh, starts with a Dorado C. Beach. Okay, Dorado that's, Beach. Oh, sorry, Dorado, right, right, right. Okay, so you're in, you're in Puerto Rico. Yes, and you know, he's thrived and done extremely well with just, you know, putting up a show on, on YouTube and the other channels and, yes. and monetizing it. They started a drink brand. I think they had a hundred million in sales because he yeah. endorsed it. Yes. Opportunities come to you when you're in that situation. Correct. And Correct. you know what I, so I think that's good. And I think for business owners, it's necessary to be able to get yourself out there. I know for me, like my most successful pieces of content are things where I'm actually giving people things that are of value, like mm -hmm. teaching them things that can help them. Like I, I see people do things like I saw someone the other day. It was just crazy. He's like, I'm in XYZ business and I'm on vacation and this is what people in XYZ business do. And they show themselves having fun on vacation. Mm -hmm. That is not a successful piece of content to me. Not yeah. for someone who wants to teach a business, successful content would have been he's teaching a business like give me specific actionable things that are insights that that wouldn't occur to someone and say hey here here are three things that you should know about this business have some say oh my gosh those are such great insights i want to know more yes. like that's that's where i think you want to go not like oh here's my new corvette or my new lamborghini or my new for whatever it's not that day's I over i agree so with you because there was a time where, you know, people like Ty Lopez popped into the scene. All they had to show was a Lamborghini, you know, probably a rented Lamborghini and they get a ton of yeah. views. I agree with you. I think those days are over and the consumer is looking for value on the internet. They're no longer, they no yes. longer care about your lifestyle. And if you have a Lambo 
or if you're making dance videos on TikTok. Again, I think there was a time and a place for that. But now, yeah, especially with the economy being weaker, people are struggling financially. And if you can, in some way, shape or form, help them, like show them how to make money, especially in, in any way, shape or form, you will get views on social media. At least that's what I found. If you can show people how to make money, you will get views or just add some type of value. I've seen people give relationship advice on social media and they go viral. Because again, that's Absolutely. something of value. Find a pain point and solve it in 60 seconds on Instagram and you will get views. But stay away from dance videos. Stay away from uh, showing re rented Lamborghinis. Like those days, in my opinion, they're over. That's just cheesy. It really is totally cheesy. And, you know, I think it's giving value. And I think value comes in several forms. One form is just flat out entertainment. You know, if yeah. you can make people laugh and make them smile and make them feel something, hugely beneficial. So if that's your personality, then leverage that. Um, you know, for me, I'm more of a technical guy because, you know, I'm an attorney and a business owner, so I'm technical. So that's what I leverage. And that's what I give people. I give people this great technical stuff and they love that because like, oh, I get to hear, you know, about business or business things from an attorney, which is a great a great thing. Usually I have to pay people a lot of money for that. So I deliver that. I think we need to look inside and say, what is it about me that I can offer people that's really of high value? And the good news, everybody has something. All of us have our own unique set of experiences, our unique set of skills. And the most important thing is to be true to yourself. Like, I'm not going to try to be an expert. Like, I'm not going to do dance videos. Believe me, I would not want to see my dance videos because right. they would be as bad as you imagine they would be. Right. Maybe worse. <laughs> Um, but, but you just, you want to be genuine to yourself. And I have this funny experience on, we do a lot of live events, uh, mm -hmm. people come up to me and they think I'm some kind of a celebrity, which I think is hilarious because they've seen me on like this TV type screen, which I just think is just comical. Um, yeah. and so sometimes they're a little intimidated and then they're, they talk to me like, you're just like you are on like YouTube. I'm yeah. Like, yeah. Who else would I be? Like, yeah. so I would say my lesson for that, be yourself. Because if you're not yourself, when they find out, they hate you. <laughs> so, yes. Because they're just a big old fat fraud. And that's how just be yourself and don't be afraid to be yourself. Yeah. And, not... it, and it's never been it's never been easier to be a content creator because I what's fascinating is even people in India, Nigeria, or wherever, they all have this. They all have a phone right yes and so that's all you need to create content like it's it's not nothing more complicated than that and actually what's interesting is the very first piece of content that i put on instagram for myself that went viral i i shot it on my phone i didn't i didn't have anything going on for me i just shot it on my phone and went it did well and i was like okay this this is something interesting and uh, it didn't make me money overnight it's it is a long-term play it's a marathon not a sprint but it's like muscle memory. Like the more you do it, it's like going to the gym. The more, the more you go to the gym, the better you're going to get. And the more you shoot content, the better you're going to get at it. So the sooner you start, the better. And that's why I'm trying to start early with my brother. He's 21. I was like, man, you're 21. By the time you get to my age, I'm 35. I mean, you're going to be an expert at creating content. And that's my hope for him. And that's my hope for, for the new generation out there as well. Yeah, I think they can relate to that. And and I think, like I said, you want to look at whatever age you are, whether you're 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever. Um, this stuff is very easy to do. You can literally pick up your cell phone and talk at it. It's that easy.
um, just to start with. And the most important thing is that you're giving someone something that benefits their life. It could be making money, could be getting in a relationship, help getting into a relationship, getting thinner, getting more fit, anything that will help them. And what you want to look at is what is it that you have in your skills and your knowledge that can really help people? Because we all have it. It's all different. You know, we're all, we're all, you know, slightly different people with different experiences, different temperaments. And if you stay true to that, the other thing that does, it avoids the problem you talked about earlier, Sharma, like you're just in banking because it was money, which totally understandable from the son of an immigrant whose parents are on welfare. And you're like, God, I got to make money. Yeah. That is totally like straight up sensible to do that. Mm-hmm. I think what you want to look at when you're thinking about like, what would you do for content? Think about something that you really are passionate about and that really interests you. Like, for example, my brother is big into health and fitness. He's a very, very mm-hmm. fit guy, amazing for his age. You know, he's like a gazelle on the tennis court. He's amazing. That's not my thing. I'm like, give me a book in a corner and I will go read for hours. I love that. So, yeah. you know, it's different temperaments. So I'm not going to tell you how to hit a golf ball. <laughs> if you don't want to hear from me, but yeah. my brother will. I'm not going to tell you how to get in shape but my brother could, but we'd have different things. Like if he wanted to go online, that's what he would be talking about. If, you know, for me, I talk about the things that are in my specialty. And I think, you know, it's like you, Sean, you talk about things that have helped you to, to build this amazing business, this amazing life, to be mm-hmm. calm, to be in shape, to be fit, and not to feel stressed out and God forbid cleaning toilets yeah. in your tie. This Absolutely. is a bad idea. I'm just imagining the tie dipping in the toilet where that's all I go with that. Not easy. I have huge respect for cleaners. I, I don't know how they do it day in, day out. It's tough. That's a tough way to make money. Yeah. Well, I think it's all about mindset because that to me, they're accepting that that's what they should be doing for whatever reason. And you know, yes. I'm sure there's something back in their history that tells them that's what they should be doing. So they go do that. Um, yes. That's another thing I would say. This is, I, we should have a short conversation about this. For me, part of my journey into entrepreneurship was this very voluminous mindset training. Tony Robbins, something called Lifespring, which is an offshoot of the ESP movement, um, mindset stuff. Did you do any of that or do you see any value in that? What's interesting is I've, I've never studied any mindset content. Really? Um, I, yeah, which is, which is, I know it's quite strange. Um, never watched Tony Robbins. Like I, I tried to watch him once on YouTube, but I found it kind of boring. I don't know. Wow. I just never did it. But I, what I will tell you is the way I've developed my mindset and, and the way I have a very strong mindset is it's all been shaped by one thing, which is quite interesting. It's all just been shaped by trauma. Like, believe it or not, it's all just been shaped by trauma. <laughs> you know, when you when you have a difficult childhood, like you have no money, I'll give you a story. It, trying to immigrate to Canada, I was living in Turkey for two years and it was just myself and my mom and my dad was in Canada and we had no money. So I remember, right. even though I was very young, but you only remember traumatic moments from your childhood. You don't, you generally sure. don't remember much, but I remember all we could eat was bread and tea. Like that's it. And like sometimes cottage cheese. So that's what I remember wow. from my childhood. And I remember we were living in a basement in the middle of nowhere in some in some impoverished area. And when it would rain, uh, the basement would flood. So my point is, when you go through these types of traumatic experiences as a kid, 
And I'm not saying you should seek out traumatic experiences, obviously, but I certainly did have traumatic moments as uh, growing up. That's what hardened my mind. And that it was, it, that's what gave me a backbone. And that's what gave me motivation. Like, um, you know, just an internal desire to do well, because anytime I felt down and out, anytime I felt like, Hey, I, I feel depressed, unmotivated, lethargic, whatever. I would think back to when I was five, six, seven years old, when I had nothing, when I was living in Turkey, when I had no food, that gives me very quick motivation. Right. And it reminds me, I need to stay disciplined with my pursuit of success. So I don't know. I think that for the average person, I think they would benefit from a Tony Robbins type figure from reading books. Uh, for whatever reason, I never went down that path. I just went down the path of, I just had a really traumatic upbringing and that just provided me with a strong mind and a strong will or willpower desire to become successful. So that's, that's really what helped me. I think people from, from your mind, from your background would have fallen into one of two camps, either just fall into desolation and depression and end yes. up dead by 35 yeah. um, or a few like yourself, you know, just take that as fuel to just fire you up. And you're like, I'm, this is not acceptable. This is not what I deserve. This is not what my life is going to be like. I actually think the the mindset stuff for a lot of people is getting out of your own way because mm -hmm. that's, you know, I think and that's more of a problem. I think for people who grow up in a more privileged way without that kind of trauma where crap, bread and tea again. I mean, it's like, you know, it's just not good living yeah. in a place, the floods, like this is horrible deprivation. Um, I think for people who grew up in more comfortable circumstances, they really get in their way. And you also have that problem where you can achieve a moderate level of success pretty easily in Canada or the U S they really mm -hmm. aren't starving unless they want to be starving for some reason. It's just not like the, the society is set up. So there's social safety nets that even prevent that. You have to do nothing. Yes. Um, yes. I think it's more about getting out of your own way. And in my experience of the entrepreneurs I train, I train a lot of them just, they step in their own tails and, and that's all. And they just need to, to give themselves permission to stop doing that and to just like do the things that matter. Like I find in my business, I'm telling people, if I have someone that's having trouble in the overages business, I only ever have to ask one question to diagnose the problem. I'll, if it was you, I'd say, Hey, Sean, so you're not having the success you wanted to have. You're not making any money. So tell me, so how many calls do you make in an average week? And I could tell yes. you what you would do if you're my student with the trouble, you would stare at your shoes. <laughs> you'd say, my yeah. shoes look so interesting today. And I'd say, well, this is great. Cause now we know the problem. You got to make calls. And yes. if you don't make the calls or have someone else make the calls for you, you'll have no business. So at least we know the problems. So let's, let's figure out how to solve that problem is just making the calls. And then yes it's a lot of psychological stuff. You know, they're just like, well, someone might call me a scammer or someone might, might hang up on me. I'm like, yeah, somebody's going to call you a scammer and somebody's going to hang up on you. And it's unfortunate for them because they're not going to get their money. And they were wrong. Like mm -hmm. you're not a scammer because you're only calling someone because they're on a list with a lot of money owed. And if you want to be successful, you have to get over that. Absolutely. Period. And um, one thing, one thing I'll say, you know, you know, circling back to, mindset, Tony Robbins, etc. A lot of people that I talk to, let's put, let's say unsuccessful people as a general category. Usually what I find with unsuccessful people is that they feel sorry for themselves and they'll typically blame two or three things. They'll say, I'm depressed. I have a lot of emotionality. I have a lot of trauma. 
And that becomes their cop-out or their excuse as to why they're not yeah. successful. My approach has always been, I'm going to take my depression, my emotionality, and my trauma, and I'm going to transfer this energy, this negative energy, and I'm going to use it as a source of fuel to put to propel me forward. So I've just used it as a source of fuel. And I know, and I know you mentioned that word earlier, and I, and I love that word. You have to find a source of fuel for yourself to motivate you to push forward. And for me, as bizarre as it sounds, the source of fuel for me has just been those three things, emotions, trauma, depression. And it's been a fantastic source of fuel for me. And, and in fact, without those three sources, I, I wouldn't be where I am today because I would run out of motivation at some point. But um, the more extreme your emotions, depressions, and trauma are, I do believe the more successful you can be. And I know that's a contrarian uh, way of thinking. But for me, it's certainly ser served its purpose. And I still use those three sources as a source of fuel today. You know, I that think that's a really valuable lesson because we all get some version of those things, some version of painful things that happen to us you know, a yes. business failure and a bankruptcy, a marriage falling apart, the death of a family member, a wife, a spouse, a child. We all get some stuff, you know, cancer, things happen. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what are you gonna use that for? And what you have to use it for if you wanna survive and thrive is you have to use it to fuel you to the next thing. You just have to. And you can choose to turn it inward and feel sorry for yourself and crumble and you're just going to sit there by the side of the road like a, a homeless leper and yeah. that's the way it'll be. Or you can use it and say, all right, I got this raw deal and I'm going to now use this for energy to, to be successful. And, yes. you know, I think it's very easy. I, I also think one thing you could do if you're in that situation is stop watching the news because <laughs> yeah. you'll still know enough about what's going on, but in the news, they do nothing. And speaking of the attention economy, all they want is your attention and what, what gets humans attention better than anything is danger and drama and things that make you angry that you can't change. And that's what gets you to tune in tomorrow. And those news organizations are smart, savvy operators that just put that front and center. That's why there is no good news on, yep. on the news because you won't tune in if they're, if everything's fine, why would you tune in? Yes. You need to know what so-and-so popular, you know, politician just did that's outrageous and the world's going to end and blah, 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 blah. And in my thought, if you don't control it, limit how much time, how much attention you pay, pay to it, pay a lot of attention to things that you can control and that can mm -hmm. move your life forward, whatever that is. And, and focus on those things because those are the things that are going to get you someplace. The other stuff is just going to get you upset. That's all that will do. Yeah. And there's a, there's a mindset hack that's, served me very, very well. So um, I've, I've convinced myself of this mindset hack and it's, and it's, uh, it's served this purpose for me. So what I do is anytime I feel depressed, anytime I, I'm facing a traumatic moment or a traumatic experience, I have convinced my mind that this is a test, that the universe is testing me. The universe wants to see if I'm going to break or not. So I've convinced myself that it's a test. And because it's a test, I need to push forward because I need to, I need to pass the test. And that simple mindset hack has gotten me through every traumatic experience, every form of depression. It, it's just, it's literally just that simple. This is a test. 
And if I get through it, the universe will reward me. And every single time, that's exactly what's happened. Anytime I faced a traumatic experience and I've gotten through it because I've convinced myself that it's a test, I've gotten through it, I have been rewarded with something. It's happened every single time. And I actually really I love do it. believe that. I really do believe I that. Love I think it. that, yeah. That makes complete sense to me as an entrepreneur and, and seeing that, yes. Oftentimes when you have a disappointment or something that's really bad that happens, there's something better around the corner, but you have to get through the thing that you're doing. And you hear that with savvy investors that I know and savvy business people. Um, one of the things that they'll say, an investor will say it this way, you know, cut your losses as soon as possible. Like mm -hmm. if something's losing, cut it off and move on. Meaning if you have a stock, they're typically talking about stocks and equities investing. Like if it's losing, sell it. And what that does for you is it frees you up to do something else. And in stocks, they're talking about investing in other things. But if you have a business like you had your dry cleaning business, stop it and go do something else. Because the more time you waste on it, the less, you know, the longer it's going to take you to get to the next thing, or you'll never get there. Yeah. I think that's a, a great, a great thing. And also I would add, understand that there will be failures, there will be problems, there will be challenges, and sometimes you won't know what the path is out of them. And what you have to do is keep walking. And the way I imagine it in my mind, like I'm walking down this road and it's just like quicksand and mud and heart and brambles and just bad stuff. If I keep walking long enough, that won't last forever. And I just have to keep going. I can't sit there. And yeah. in business, you know, we have difficult things to do sometimes. Sometimes it's an HR thing. You got to fire somebody. Yeah. Or, or, you know, you have to, you know, discontinue a product or, you know, something, something that's not necessarily easy. And the sooner you do it, the better off you'll be and the happier yeah. that you'll be. Um, there's, there's also this interesting concept. Um, I forget the name of the author, but he wrote about what he calls the hero's journey. And what's interesting about the hero's journey, like if you look at any comic book, any superhero movie, there's always going to be, it always follows the same paradigm. There's a superhero, they were down and out, they had to overcome a big obstacle, and then they became a superhero and then, and then they became a success. What that has to do with basic life is that if you want to be the superhero in your own life or for your own family, you have to overcome some type of obstacle. Like that's just the way the world works. And I feel like most people forget that. They just feel like they need to get immediate success, instant gratification, you know, put up one video and go viral and have tens of millions of views. That's not the way it works because that's no. not the hero's journey. The hero's journey is meant to be difficult. And only through, and, and there's another quote, I forget who said it, but anything that has diff, anything that is difficult to attain has value. Like that's the reason why it has value because it is difficult to attain. Not that many people can do it. So if you're expecting instant success, you've got the wrong mindset. You have to expect difficulty. And that's exactly why it has value once you attain it. That is very good very good wisdom in life. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think for everybody out here saying, you know, why I was excited to have Sean on and talking about all this stuff, the thing to do is very clear in my life at this point. And I'm a, believe me, I'm a recovered do-it-yourselfer. Whenever you're thinking about doing something, you want to work with and learn from people who are doing it successfully, whatever it is. And, you know, obviously Sean's business is short-term rentals, 
And if you were interested in that business, he'd be a great guy to learn from. Um, and if that business doesn't appeal to you, then he wouldn't be. Then you would just go do something else. But what you want to do is look around for a person to learn from. You don't want to be a do-it-yourselfer. You know, if you're a PhD from some major university, you just have that hurdle to overcome. Just let your ego out of the way and go learn from someone who you know knows how to do what you want to do. Because what you do then is you build on top of that person's shoulders. And if you truly are that smart and that bright, you'll build past Sean. And Sean will clear, cheer you on, I'm sure. You'll be like, hey, that's my guy. Or that's my girl. Look what she did. Um, yes. But you want to, you know, you just don't want to be a do-it-yourself. Or believe me, it's just such a mistake to do that. Um, it's, it's, it's a way paved with a lot of failure, a lot of difficulty, a lot of time. And it's not a good, it's not a good path. And, and by the way, Sean, you know what we'll do? We'll put, a, um, we'll put in the show notes a link to you, you have a sales presentation or something where people can say, hey, I want to get yeah. your course. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, I have um, I actually have a free training. So people don't even need to get my course, but I have a free training that they can go through. And oh, perfect. if you feel like if you feel like you need more than that free training, then obviously the paid course, the paid mentorship, that's certainly an option. But we do have a free training that we provide and um, I'll be happy. I'd be happy. to. Provide Let me you ask you a couple of basic questions just occurring when someone might yeah. be thinking about this. If someone wants to start up, say, through you with what you, you do, if yeah. they want to start up a business um, doing short-term rentals, where will it work and where won't it work? Or will it work everywhere? Will it not work in certain places? Yeah. Like, yeah, That's the first question that comes to my mind. Absolutely. Uh, my answer is it will work everywhere as long as it okay. meets the three H's. So I'll define what that means. All, very simple analysis. So take the market that you're interested in and ask yourself three questions. Is the market near a hospital? Is it near a highway? Is it near a hotel? If it's a check mark for those three questions, then you're in the right market. And oh, what awesome. you'll find is 99% of North America, or frankly, 99% of planet Earth, it does fit into that category. And we can, we can discuss why really quickly. If you're near a hotel, what does that mean? That means that a big company, <clears throat> a big company has determined that this market has tourism that has business travelers. Like they've already done all the work. They've already figured it right. out. That's why yeah. they spent millions of dollars setting up a hotel. Okay, that's simple. What about a highway? Well, there people need to have a way to get to your market. And if it's not near a major highway, it's probably not a good market. And the third thing is um, a hospital. So with a hospital, you're gonna get doctors and traveling uh, nurses that come to stay at your property either as a short-term rental or as a mid-term rental. And I know this is something that we didn't discuss, but a mid-term rental is a, is, a, is a category that we're also involved in. And what a mid-term rental means is it's a 30-day or more rental. <clears throat> now, when you do a 30-day or more rental, you actually bypass all regulations. So even in a place like New York City, you can put any property in New York City as a mid-term rental on Airbnb, like legally, any, any property, doesn't matter what, just put it on Airbnb for 30 days, and the basic premise there is that the way to not make money in property rentals is if it's a 12 month rental, like no, nobody makes money as a 12 month rental that that doesn't happen. Now, if you take a 30 day rental, people will pay you a huge premium to stay with you for 30 days versus 12 months. And, and the simple concept is the shorter they stay, the more they pay. Like that's, that's yep. the basic concept. In, in this business. So if you go go as short as one night, that's where you get the biggest premium possible. 
But if you can go as, as you know, long as 30 days, you still get a huge premium compared to a 12 month rental. So between a short term rental, mid term rental, you just have to meet those three H's and you're in the right market. So I believe it works anywhere. That's great. So it can work anywhere. Um, the second question I have, realistically speaking, how much capital does someone need to, to get started? You know, just making their first property, their first dollars, what's, what's a realistic you, amount? Absolutely. You, you can, and by no means is this hyperbole, you can literally get started with $0 because you are managing someone else's property. Now, if you wanted to, to approach the business in a sophisticated way and you wanted to automate the business, then there is minor expenses you have to pay for. So you do have to pay for a software stack to automate your guest messaging, to automate your pricing, to automate calendar syncing, but we're not talking a lot of money. So for maybe 50, 60 bucks a month, you can automate all that stuff. And the only other expense you would incur is if you wanted to incorporate a business. So, you know, spend two, 300 bucks, incorporate a business. And if you wanted to set up a website, that would be another expense, but you can get templates online for like 50, hundred bucks. So if you really want minor. to come out of this the gate strong, yeah, couple yeah, hundred bucks. Five hundred dollars, maybe startup costs, very, very minimal. And in my professional, lawyerly opinion, that is nothing. Yeah, exactly. Now, so let me ask the other side. So, what what could someone who really focuses on this really like gets a decent market, starts working hard? Could they replace a job income, you know, yeah. in a year or two, in six months? Absolutely, absolutely. So. The way we try to do it with our students is we try to help them land a deal within 30 days or less. And generally speaking, one property can net you as low as $1,000 a month to $3,000 a month. This is on average. So if you need to replace your job and, and, you're, and you're not earning that much money, like let's say you're making just 50 grand a year, you know, three properties will be more than enough to replace your job. Now, if you're a six-figure earner, it'll take more properties than that. Right? So you sure. might have to get six, seven properties. And by that point, you can vacate your job. Now for me, because I'm very conservative, I waited till I had 24 properties before I quit my banking job. But again, uh, I was in a bit of a different situation because I was supporting my parents financially. I literally could not afford to take any risk because yeah. if I didn't make it, my parents would be homeless. So I stuck around for a long, long time in my nine to five job, more so than I needed to. But um, if you're not supporting your parents financially, you should leave like after your, let's say after your third property, you should leave and do this full time. I, I'm going to ask you another question that this is, it's probably not too off color. These days you have to be careful with everybody. Um, what kind of people like personality wise, age wise, things like that, what kind of people can do this? And for what kind of yep. person is it probably not the right business? Ah, uh, man, I, the answer is anybody. And I know, again, I know that sounds like hyperbole, but let me give you a couple examples. Um, the youngest person that I've personally seen this, uh, seen pull this off is 18 years old. So he was a high school student, 18, just used our scripts, emailed landlords on Craigslist, Facebook marketplace, and Zillow landed his first co-listing deal, IE management deal in three days. So that's wow. one of the fastest executions that I've seen by somebody that's very, very young. Now I'll give you another story. That's, that's also very impressive. We have an individual, his name is Mo Nelson. So if you, you guys want to go to Google type in Mo Nelson, he's actually documented this in a book on Amazon, but basically he went to jail for 13 years. 
Okay. Went to jail for 13 years, came out of jail, couldn't get a job because he's got a criminal record. Right. So he's fixing vending machines. Then he gets into our program and he lands three co-listing deals. And within his first three to four months, he had $40,000 in bookings. This wow. is a person that was sitting in a jail cell for 13 years. So from my perspective, anybody can do it aged 18 or above. I haven't seen anybody below the age of 18 do it. So I can't, um, I can't vouch for that. But anybody aged 18 or above can do this. And can you start this as a side hustle? I assume you can, but with some double check. And I would, I would recommend to everybody, if they want to get into any business, like don't quit your job, right? Like start it as a side hustle, start making some money, quit your job when the time is right. But absolutely. And the only amount of time that they need to do this business is just 30 minutes a day. That's it. If you have 30 minutes a day to spare, and it's very simple to find 30 minutes, just stop watching Netflix. Stop watching Netflix yeah, and you'll find you do have 30 minutes a day. So how much time, you know, you, you do flat out education. So if someone like took your educational stuff, how much time would it take them to like read whatever they have to read, go through videos or whatever they have to do and be able to say, all right, let me reach out to my first you know, owner. Yeah. So this, this is a great question because our course has 30 hours of content, but what we recommend to students is, do not sit there for 30 hours watching content. So what we tell students is watch the content for two hours and then start prospecting. Like we want people prospecting on day two of the program. What we don't want is somebody sitting there for weeks and weeks watching me and then burning out and not prospecting at all. The most successful people will start prospecting on day two. Like they'll watch one or two hours of me, they'll take our scripts, they'll start prospecting. And they'll figure things out once they've landed a deal. And that, that's the more, it goes back to what I said earlier, money in. Get money into your bank account, figure out everything else later. I also think that's an energy management thing. So uh, to me, this when I think about students that I'm teaching, I want to get them small successes right away. Yeah. And even if a small success is, hey, I called four landlords and one person's interested. I you got to pause for just a moment and say, wow, somebody's interested. This is great. And then yeah. get you know back to your work, but I think you can't make ultimate success only. Oh, I've replaced my job income, and now I can feel good. You got to keep your energy up by by celebrating the little successes that come along the way. Like, hey, I learned the script. I practice it with my wife or my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my husband. And now I'm going to pick up that phone. It's scary the first time. Let me pick up the phone and talk to somebody. And I think. You know, when people spend too much time, like I'm going to form my entity and meet with my accountant, your energy just runs out because there's only so much you can do. But I think if you, if you have those micro successes, I love the fact that after like two hours, people can get on the phone because, you know, when you call that person and they say, yeah, that sounds like a good deal. Let's, let's sit down, you know, come meet me at the property and let's talk about it. Yep. That's a huge boost. And, and I think that's, that's really good. Really good. And here's here's the thing too. I mean, what's fascinating about this business is we have students that are landing deals sight unseen. I'll give you a, I'll give you a great example. I have a student in Vancouver, BC, where I live. Um, his name is Cameron. So Cameron, he just went to Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, Zillow, started prospecting landlords in Hawaii, and he closed the deal in Hawaii. He has never met the landlord in person. He's never been to the property, and he's doing remote management. And so why that matters is. If you're not living in the U.S. like Cameron, you're just living in some foreign country, you can still land deals in the U.S. You can literally do your meeting over Zoom, 
close the deal and do the entire management apparatus remotely. So that's one of the fascinating things about this business. You know, it's cool about that too. You can get into really good markets because if you're living in like far flung North Dakota, you know, just someplace like outside, it's not going to be like, you know what I mean? Some little town in North Dakota and want to do your Airbnb thing. It's not, yes. that's not a good market, yeah. but you could pick the good markets and say, you know yes. what? I like that market. That is, you know, the, the things that Sean teaches about that I should be looking for. It's, you know, strong visitors, all that stuff. The whole world's open to you. 100%. Which is really, really cool. Hundred um, percent. And do you teach people about like so when you hear the remote thing? Do you teach people about like the remote services they can access and Everything. how to do that? Everything. It's it's so simple now, because the, the, you know it, it's it's really this simple. All you need to know is how to reach out to landlords. And again, we're talking basic websites: Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, Zillow. There's a bunch of other websites out there. Those are like three basic ones. Once you close the deal, then all you need to do is just find a maintenance person and find a cleaner. And you can do that on various websites. We get into that in the course. But once you've sourced the cleaner, like that's pretty much it. Then the rest of your job is just making sure that you rank on the first page of Airbnb. So you understand Airbnb SEO. You understand how to price. And that's done through automation software. And ultimately, just giving good service to guests. Just making sure that you collect five-star reviews. It's and it's not that hard getting five star reviews if you know what you're doing. That's it. It's very, that's very really, simple. That's really good advice. That's another thing that reminds me. If you start going, like getting good reviews, that generates more business and you do well. If you start getting bad reviews, it can kill you. And yeah. that's another reason you do not want to start like just doing stuff on your own because you'll shoot yourself in the foot. I guarantee it. And later you say, oh, that was so simple. I couldn't see that. But that's once you get negative reviews, it's too late. There's nothing to do. So, you know, yes. that's, that's just another example of, you know, when I talked earlier about the layers of the onion, you know, you don't know the yeah. layers of the onion, you know, when you're, no matter how smart you are, you're not going to see them past like three and someone yeah. like Sean's at like level eight there, <laughs> or whatever. You know, level there's another question that I commonly get, which is, is Airbnb saturated? Is the opportunity over? Yeah, that's and a great I, question. And I always tell people the same thing. I say, look, any lucrative business opportunity will have competition. Like if you were expecting to go into a business with no competitors and you're making all the money, I mean, I don't know what planet you're from, but that that's just not how the real world works. And what I tell them is the top 20% of Airbnb hosts make 80% of the money. So all you have to figure out, doesn't matter what market you're in, you just have to know how to be in the top 20%. And it's not that hard because think about your competition set. It's a bunch of mom and pop operators. Like these people aren't taking courses or getting into mentorship programs and they don't have a network. They're just mom and pops. They don't know what they're doing. They take photos on their phone, chuck it on Airbnb. Oh, they sit back and they yes. hope to print money. That's not how it works. Like this is a real business. You have to know what you're doing. So that again, makes so much sense. makes 80% of the money. Yeah. And that, that is the, that's for everybody out there. It's the Pareto principle, which I'm sure you've yeah. heard of at some point. Yeah. And it's true. It, it's almost everything in life. You know, yeah. 20% of the people will make 80% of the money. Yeah. Um, also, you know, 20% of the people will cause 80% of your problems. And that's yeah. another, I'm sure you teach people how to avoid the bad tenants yeah. and how to avoid bad, bad owners to deal with. Yes, absolutely. Because that's, you know, that's another thing. Um, that's good. And, you know, I also just believe this fully with my heart. 
whatever business you choose to get into, whether you choose to, hey, let me give this Airbnb thing a shot, which things I like about it, what I'm hearing, not a lot of capital to get into, not tons of time to get involved with. You can sort of just try it and see, you know, see how it works for you with your personality and, you know, your just your your just your personality is probably the best way to put it. Yeah. And if you and love I, it, do more of it. If you didn't, mm-hmm. not a big deal. Yeah. What I also tell people is, you know, what you don't want to do is get into a business where you're just an analyst service provider and you never truly become the boss. And here's what I mean by that. If your intent is to get into this business and just manage properties for people until the end of time, you could certainly do that. But in my opinion, that's a boring way to go about it because think about it. Who are you managing properties for? You're managing it for land lords. So the question I've always asked myself is how do I become the landlord? How do I become the landlord? And what's great about this business is you can enter the business in a low risk way that doesn't require capital, make money off other people's properties, learn the business, and then eventually become the boss, eventually become the landlord. Take the money that you've made in your business, go get a business loan, buy a property for yourself and Airbnb it. Once you know what you're doing, like don't do that as a starting point, that's high risk. But once you know what you're doing, you can become the boss, you can become the landlord. And um, there's just not many business models out there that I'm aware of or any business models out there that I'm aware of where you get into a business as a service provider and you end up owning real estate. I don't know, but I'm not aware of any. Yeah, maybe fast food franchises. I don't know. That's the only thing I can think of. But I I know from my experience in business and as an attorney, oftentimes when when my clients hit retirement age, they're cashing out from their ownership of the real estate. And just simple examples, like I had one client that was in the plumbing supply business. And he did okay. Like he did well in the plumbing supply business, but wasn't rich. But yeah. when he sold his commercial property and warehouse, he was rich. I can tell yeah. you that. About yeah. 52 years old, he cashed out on that and never had to work a day in his life. And it's because they used that, you know, the cash flow from their business to, to buy performing real estate. And what I would add just thinking about this because, you know, this is kind of contra- or may seem contradictory to the advice of, well, if they change the rules, you could really take it on the chin. I, I think, first of all, it's a matter of, of having the right mix. You don't want to be completely leveraged out where you strap yourself. And you also want to be at a point where it's a good enough market that if they said, hey, you can't do these Airbnbs anymore, yeah. you could sell your real estate. And because it's a rising market that has been rising while you've owned it, because population is increasing in that area. You'll do fine anyway. You'll get a nice parting yeah. gift on your way out. That's all. So if you were Absolutely. in like Austin Absolutely. or something, you'd be a really happy camper because you'd be like, all right, so I was here for seven years. My house is now tripled and I can't Airbnb them anymore. Let me just dump them and you know t- take my money and, and go on my yeah. way. And my advice would be, you know, Airbnb is just the starting point in this business. But once you become sophisticated in this business, you start branching out of Airbnb. And an example of that is, what we're doing now is a category called corporate housing. So what corporate housing means is that, especially with our more luxury properties, we do midterm rentals and we rent it out to traveling nurses, traveling academics, insurance companies. Now this is an interesting one. So when you rent out to an insurance company, it's because somebody has had a flood or some type of damage to their property. They need temporary housing. So your literal tenant becomes an insurance company and they'll rent it from you from one to three to six months. 
and they pay you a huge premium. Sure. Another huge premium is from is from movie studios. Like if you have a nice luxury property and you don't want to do Airbnb, that's fine. Do midterm rentals with movie studios. And these movie studios, if you wanted to do short term rentals, they can pay you as much as ten thousand bucks a day. Ten thousand bucks a day. I mean, yeah, ten thousand bucks a day. If you have if you have a luxury property, like I'm not saying a one bedroom condo is gonna go for ten grand a day, but if you have a like one of the properties in our portfolio has twenty is worth twenty five million bucks. And it's very fascinating how this one came about because it was on the market for sale. It's literally on the market for sale for over a year. And our value proposition to the realtor, not even to the landlord, to the realtor was, hey, while you're trying to sell this property, why don't we monetize it for the landlord as a short-term rental and as a mid-term rental? So it's kind of a no-brainer. So yeah, it's been sitting for sale for over a year. It's not making any money. Why don't we monetize it for you? And a logical landlord, as long as they trust you, they will say yes. And the funny thing is, it's still listed for sale, and we're still monetizing it. And this yeah, because the know, landlord's is, making money. What do they care? So yeah. they'll let it. I mean, they can sit on the market for as long as they want. I mean, yeah, it's like it's hard to sell a property that's worth twenty-five mil. It's, it's just not going to sell overnight unless the landlord's willing to cut the price. And in this case, the landlord's not willing to cut the price, so we continue to monetize it for him and. You know, it's, 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 it's fantastic for us. It's fantastic for a landlord. And if somebody wants to come along and pay him 25 mil, yeah, either way he's winning, he, he doesn't lose. So that'd be my, my that's just such advice. great things. And so I, I'm looking at my, my clock and we gotta, we gotta wrap up here. Um, what I would say is just to everybody out there, it's obvious how much wisdom and experience that, that Sean has. And I'm classifying as wisdom because wisdom is different than just knowledge. Knowledge is something some dude learned out of a book, which is good, and it's a good start. Um, But it's different from wisdom. Wisdom comes from life experience, from applying knowledge, seeing how it works out, and then adjusting and learning. And that's the kind of person you want to learn from, no matter what it is. Again, whether it's short-term rentals or whatever. You want to learn from someone with wisdom and life experience um, because – that's just going to give you the best chance of success. And the other thing I would say is, as I've been repeating, you need to learn from people who are doing things successfully because the ideal is you learn from them and then you stand on their shoulders. You know, you bring your own thing to it, bring your own experience, bring your own style. And, you know, for all of us teachers, for me, and I'm probably, we'll see if Sean says the same thing. I take such great pleasure when my students do well. And if they do better than me, I'm just, clapping them clapping for them because for me it's it's partly my own like i feel a sense of ownership of that and a sense of joy because like wow i taught that man something or that woman something look at him go and and i think that that to me is very rewarding as as a, a teacher and an educator a mentor that's really really important um it, you know it's this is obvious if you have an interest in learning more from sean learning more about what sean does We'll put a link to his free presentation. Go check it out. Go see if it's if it's interest. If it resonates with you, go do it. I mean, take take your shot at it. You know, invest a couple hundred bucks, invest a couple hours, and you could be off to your next great adventure, your your next success in life that could give you, you know, perhaps the lifestyle of the life you want. And you know, I know there are lots of people out there that are in corporate jobs that don't fit them. The corporate thing wasn't for me. I, I didn't enjoy it. So I got out, Sean got out. Um, and I think if that's, if that's where you are, it's really something to look at. So um, anything you wanted to add, Sean, before we wrap up? 
I think first off, just wanted to thank you so much, Bob, for your time. Um, we all know how valuable your time is, so I'm very, very appreciative. And I know this is the first time we've interacted, but I look forward to um, working with you many, many times over. And the piece of advice that I give to the audience, I mean, similar, echoing Bob's statements. If you want to get into a business, you can certainly do it yourself and go through the trials and errors. That's one way to do it. Or you can get the cheat code. You know, work with somebody who's done it themselves. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to pitch myself or pitch my course or anything. You're more than welcome to do this for free. But one piece of advice I will give you is this, and this might sound counterintuitive, but people who pay for things, people who pay for things, they end up paying attention. It's very interesting. When something is just given to you for free, and I've tested this, I've, with my own friends, I've given my mentorship program to them for free, they never pay attention. I don't know what it is about the wiring of our brain, but unless you pay for something, you do not pay attention. So people who pay, they pay, they pay attention. So I would challenge you to do that for yourself as well. And for me, if anybody does end up joining my mentorship program, take it from me, somebody who's an immigrant, I don't take this opportunity for granted. Like if you give me your hard earned money, I'll make sure we take care of you. So that's my promise and my pledge to you guys. And uh, Bob, thank you again so much. And I look forward to uh, working with you again and having more of these. Thanks, Sean. I have such a pleasure spending time with you. And like I said, thanks for sharing all your wisdom and just giving to the people that are here listening. And we'll put the links to, to Sean and his, just go look at the free presentation to get started. That'll, that'll get you. How long is the free presentation? Just so I, so um, if I remember correctly, it's about an hour to an hour and a half of a free yeah. training. So invest an hour, yeah. invest an hour, hour and a half. If nothing else, what I find with all those things, it's interesting and mind expanding. Cause if nothing else, like, Oh, that's cool. And you'll either want to do it or you'll have learned some new things and be like, all right, you know, now I'm, you're sort of carrying off to wherever your next success is going to be. Um, so it's not a waste of time at all. So go do that, you know, and yeah. go learn that. And if you like it, you know, there's a guy to learn from who's doing it successfully, which is the most critical thing. You just need someone who's doing it successfully. And you can see it's you know obvious for all of us here. You can see the wisdom that Sean has. You see his style, you know, very simple, straightforward comments, not stuff where you have to like get a dictionary to try to figure out what the on earth the guy just said. But right. someone who's really here to share and not throwing around a bunch of industry lingo so you can't understand what he's talking about. Instead, a guy is just you know someone you can learn from. And I personally know people who are in the business of short-term rental who are extremely successful, having great lives. Um, and you know, if it appeals to you, that can be there for you too. So thanks for listening. I hope that you learned something useful. If you like this, obviously hit the like button. If this is the first time and you like more of it, hit the subscribe button. And if you have questions or more, want more things, just stick them in the comments and, and we'll see what we can do. I can't answer every question, but we'll get to as many as we can. Um, and thank you. And thanks, Sean. Really appreciate you. Thank, thank you. you for being here. Thank you so much, Bob. Appreciate you. Bye for now.